Hello everyone, guess who? Yes, it's Jim. Jim Lanoskowski. With another prelude. So, first of all, bear with me, I just want to say um, right off the top here, I can't thank you enough for the support of the new podcast network that I helped put together. The Now Playing Network over at nowplayingnetwork.net is currently hosting this show, my spinoff show, Pop Culture Club, but more importantly, two excellent new podcasts. A music-based interview show featuring the great Jim Hankey with Vinyl Emergency, and that was recently listed on the front page of iTunes' new and noteworthy section, <laughs> which um, couldn't happen to a better guy. It's a great show, and I, I, I'm honored that he's a part of the Now Playing family. Of course, we also have former guest Eric Childress, who was unforgettable from the Zemeckis and Christopher Nolan episodes. He's launched his own podcast on the network titled Movie Madness, which undoubtedly must derive from his favorite um, movie of all time, Midnight Madness. <laughs> Not really his favorite movie, but both shows are great. So I hope you subscribe, support these podcasts, um, but also because of the network and the cost that comes with welcoming these shows, hosting um, a new website, and both both hosts, both Eric and Jim, are, you know, making efforts to seek out sponsors. So I feel like Directors Club will be doing the same, probably starting in March. So don't think I'm selling out when you start hearing ads for Audible or something crazy. I'm just trying to make podcasting and podcast consulting a little bit more cost-effective in terms of the monthly fees it takes to host this, the network website and the RSS feeds. Um... You know, I do this because I love it. I do this because I'm passionate about archiving conversations and discussions. That goes all the way back to when I was a kid and had a tape recorder and would just randomly tape uh, my family talking, and I would save our conversations and re-listen to them. I don't know where that, why that's occurred in my lifetime, but it sort of evolved into this, into this sort of shared collective of um, podcasting. But, you know, obviously I'm not going to... You don't have to worry. Director's Club is never going to cost you anything, but you can contribute. You can contribute at nowplayingnetwork.net where you can donate whatever is feasible for you, whatever works for your budget. It can be two bucks, four bucks, five bucks, a penny. It doesn't matter. Just um, try and do that maybe once a month if possible. I'm not going to make you do it, but it would be great because it helps not only my show, it helps the other shows. Whatever you can throw in terms of a donation would be wonderful. But the best thing to do, because it's free and it's not too demanding, is to write a review on iTunes. Just do that for Directors Club. Share this show and any of the others on social media. That's really important. Tell your friends. Share your feedback. Because I want to make this more than just an archived conversation. You know, it's not going to be full of bits. It's not going to be like a radio show. It's really, um, for me archiving a passionate conversation and that's good enough reason to continue but obviously i want to evolve grow share with others that's a that's a huge motivating factor i mean i've had drive even in like moments of huge doubt and uncertainty that this could continue but director's club is going to continue as you well know um so please share the show with your friends share the uh network website and linked link wherever you can on social media uh, so everybody can discover Vinyl Emergency Movie Madness as well as Bill Ackerman's upcoming interview based show which is in the works and I couldn't be more excited to share his endeavor 
uh, alongside Jim and Eric, like I mentioned. So uh, I hope you're excited and looking forward to a lot to come because there's a lot of good stuff on the horizon. There might even be another wonderful show in the works um, that will be joining the, the Now Playing Network. So send any emails to directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. And, of course, rate and review on iTunes, since it'll only take you a few seconds to click on some stars. That would be terrific. Now, on to this excellent episode on the great George Miller with my dear friend Colin Suter. Thanks again, guys, and I continue to have gratitude, believe me, for you taking the time to download and to listen to Director's Club. Peace out. Welcome to another edition of the Directors Club Podcast. I believe this is episode 102. I am Jim Laskowski, sitting live in the apartment of one of my favorite critics and a friend to the show. He writes for RogerEbert.com, is a weekly guest on WGN Radio. You might remember him from the episodes Joe Dante, Steven Spielberg, David Gordon Green, he lives. He dies. He lives again. He is Colin Suter. Hello. Dante Spielberg and now George Miller. Have you done a John Landis episode yet? We have, but okay. I'm willing to completely scrap it from the feed <laughs> and just redo it. Just so I could do, do all four of the Twilight Zone, the movie directors. Yeah, why not? Yeah, I, right? I, I, I would be up for that. Right. Completely. I mean, after all... Um, I'm, I'm assuming you must love American Werewolf in London. I do. I love American Werewolf. I love Blues Brothers, Animal House, you know, the classics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, what else? I like the Thriller video, even though it's silly, but I like it. (laughs) Um, Kentucky Fried Movie. Some of Amazon Women on the Moon. Did he direct? Did he direct? He directed some of of that. Pretty funny. Um, and Dante's segment with, um, uh, the, the funeral. Right. Harvey harvey's funeral right <laughs> that hilarious um and uh his documentary slacker i like or slasher slasher uh, i, I like i saw that was that about used car salesman yeah yeah huh. it's really good um but i i don't think i could do a whole podcast about him because <laughs> there's that whole str- oh it's spies like us i like he did the um, stupids yeah then the, <laughs> you get into the 90s stuff and it's like stupids innocent blood oh uh, god no. innocent blood uh, yeah we talked about innocent blood on our landis episode because right. we wanted to sort of compare and contrast the werewolf in london to the see if he could yeah you know if lightning would strike twice right <laughs> but of course it didn't um yeah, so thank you for returning um, about you know to talk about another director who contributed to Twilight Zone, the movie, mm-hmm. George Miller. Um, I'm very excited, and not just because we're on the, uh, um, well, not necessarily on the eve, but very close to the Oscars coming yeah. up here, and there seems to be a lot of momentum building up for 
the possibility of him winning Best Director. I don't know if it's going to happen. Well, we could talk about that later yeah, on yeah, yeah. when we get to the film. Um, yeah, I'm excited to do this. Um, I told a friend of mine last week that I was going to be doing a George Miller podcast, and he's like, I'm very curious to see what is the thread, what is the connection between Mad... What, what, what's the through line uh, with between Mad Max, Babe, and Happy Feet? And... There is there is one. There are a few actually, and I'm I'm excited to get to that. I'm so. excited to learn a little bit from your perspective on that because well, I mean it's very simple. I mean it's not it's it's nothing like so deep or so. But there are connections that they these series these franchises have that are uh, consistent. That wouldn't um, surprise me. Yeah, but it's funny because like with the last episode, Stanley Kubrick with um you know with Al. Thanks for introducing me to Al. Of course, sure. Um. If I type in Stanley Kubrick's name into Google, I can't even tell you the number of essays and yeah. and retrospectives and analysis and you know think pieces. Yes, and, yeah, on his work. Whereas with George Miller, there isn't a whole lot other than like sort of just uh, reflections on, especially after Fury Road came out, the the whole Mad Max mythology. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, there hasn't been a whole lot written about you know about Miller in the in the past few years until now because of yeah. Fury Road and now it's like oh my god wait a minute he's he's a genius and we should revere him and everything and I've been like yeah I've been trying to tell you guys that <laughs> all this time and you just dismiss him as oh he's making happy feet he's making babe movies doing for kids stuff and it's like no 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 let's you got to look at those movies not as kids films and this is something that like I've always found annoying um in terms of uh is a cat under there playing? Is that you? A little you? bit. A little bit. Yeah, with the, with the, with the oh, part. okay. Let's <laughs> let's get that off of there. She'll she'll play with that forever. Um. So, uh, sorry, my cat is making a nuisance of herself, but it's, oh, it happens. It happens, and there's not a whole lot I can do about it right now, except wait for her to calm down. Get, um, you know, and we're talking animal filling. movies, so or she's you know tuned in on that. That's true. So anyway, um, what I was getting to say about. I, you know, I I was at a, dis, a film discussion thing last week and, you know, Mad Max came up in the discussion and it was like, oh, should it really be nominated for Best Picture? You know, a lot of a couple of women at the table are like, really, Mad Max? Why is that up for Best Picture? Did you see it? No, I don't want to see a Mad Max film. I don't what? know that. And another woman was like, yeah, it's a guy thing. It's a guy thing. And it's like, OK, wait a minute. I don't think this is true. what this is what I hate. I mean, I hate the term chick flick. Because, and I hate that, you know, Mad Max is perceived as a guy film. And I hate that Babe and Happy Feet and, and movies that are marketed towards kids are just brushed off as kids films. I mean, there's some limiting. truth. I mean, there's yeah. I mean, there's some truth in the marketing aspect of it. Certainly a movie. Uh, what's the one coming out? How to be single <laughs> yeah, it's marketed towards women, but maybe guys would like it. And it, I mean, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not going to go see it just because well, I don't I'm want gonna, it. But. <laughs> I'm going to go see it just because Allison Brie is in it. But. Oh, okay, right. No, <laughs> and just... I have to review it thanks to you, right? <laughs> <laughs> so but what I'm getting at is like what you're. Yeah, it's very limiting in that it, it implies first of all two things. One uh, that you know a, a kids movie that means oh it's a kids movie, which means adults won't get anything out of it. And that's not true. You watch Inside Out, adults get a lot out of a movie, the movie Inside Out, or a lot of Pixar stuff, or 
even even Happy Feet or Paranorman or Paranorman I mean, uh, yeah, or the li- the Leica stuff especially. Right. I mean, I mean, I will admit that like sometimes watching certain kids' films, I haven't seen something like Goosebumps, but sometimes the humor kind of falls flat because oh, it sure. is directed. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, exactly no, no. There are kids' sensibilities and mentalities. Oh, absolutely. There are movies that pander, definitely. Yeah. Um, but like, uh, you know, something calling something a chick flick. Uh, it imply it implies not only that oh that means men won't like it or men won't get anything out of it it's uh, but it also implies that women are stupid or that men are stupid or that kids are stupid and they'll just fall for anything that is marketed towards them right you know i i think it's an i think chick flick is insulting to women um in that way uh so uh, you know i i really and i get where it comes from and it's never going to change but uh, you know, to to sort of brush off Miller's accomplishments as a filmmaker by saying, "Well, well he then he did, then he went off and did Babe and Happy Feet, and it didn't, and his work suddenly didn't matter." Well, actually, it does. If you go, if you look at all his work, it all it all connects. It definitely all connects. That wouldn't surprise me. I, I certainly, you know, after uh, rewatching a lot of the films, and I've always. I've always championed the Babe films. I, I've mm-hmm. when they first came out, I, I certainly elevated them and talked, you know, to even people who were dismissive. I said, you know, it's more than just a talking animals movie. Right. It's there's a lot of um, there's a lot of weight and depth behind these movies, and you know, some people can sort of look to them and say, well, maybe they're you know they're kind of preachy. Maybe somebody can say, oh, the ending of Happy Feet's kind of preachy. But I think those mm-hmm. messages are important to get across to kids. Yeah, absolutely, and I don't disagree. Happy Feet is preachy, but yeah, um, but yeah, I uh, the Babe and the the Babe movies are first of all, Babe is not about a talking pig. It's about a pig. The the talking part is the gimmick. It's the gimmick for the audience for to to view the rich to view the film. Yeah. Um there was a movie that came out before it called Gordy, which was about a talking pig. We've um, that's come up a lot. Thank yeah. You, <laughs> <laughs> so like that's what uh, you know, it's, it's so like oh a talking pig movie winning oh, being nominated for best picture. Well, yeah, I, I, so, sort of true. But um I I always thought about it as, you know, uh, it's about a pig with an unprejudiced heart as the narrator says. Yeah. Um but we'll get to that later. Should we start at the beginning? We where shall, should, where we does where does the mad madness in Mad Max begin? Made my debut with the first Mad Max. I was a doctor, yet I'm so relaxed. Which is so Eastwick made me exhausted. Lorenzo's oil was a huge comeback. I'm George Miller. I make films far far better. Miller, I make films. Road, 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 road warrior, babe, 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 in the city. Fury Road. Well, I know George Miller sort of claims overall that cinema can be understood as a kind of public dreaming, mm-hmm. and I think that can maybe. You know, it's sort of my own perspective on this, but, you know, a lot of indigenous Australian myths um, kind of 
harken back to this idea of a collective unconscious and this idea that we sort of live in this dream state at times and that we kind of want to immerse ourselves in that collective experience in the theater. Um, guys like Peter Weir, um, what Nicholas Rogue did with Walkabout. Australian film, I, I don't know if I've discussed this with you, but after seeing, um, you know, Not Quite Hollywood, the, the documentary about sure. Australian exploitation films, mm-hmm. I have grown to really appreciate this, the, the, the landscape of Australia, just the, the films that have come out from there, even if they're just one-offs from directors I'd never even heard of. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the fact that George Miller sort of comes from that um, originally is, is really um, striking to me. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, watching the original Mad Max, seeing how the simplicity and purity behind it, you know, as opposed to something like Fury Road... Uh, it, it kind of speaks to me a little bit more, maybe just because I've, I've recently immersed myself into that type of filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like something like Walkabout, I consider to be you know one of my favorite movies, and you know there's just there's so much to appreciate about like movies where you have all this open landscape and the open highway itself kind of becomes a character. Yeah. Um, so what was your first experience, though, with George Miller? Was it the original Mad Max? Because it was for me, actually. It was, it was the Road Warrior. My dad, okay. my dad took me and my friend to see it one Friday night at a sleepover um, because it just it looked like just a crazy, interesting movie. And, of course, it was rated R, so that gave me bragging rights, you know, uh, to be having you know my dad taking me to see a rated R movie. So that was always cool. Sure. Um, and it was just one of those things like we, you know, everybody really wanted to see it just based on the, the trailer and everything. And I knew it was a sequel to Mad Max. It didn't seem to matter, though. Um, but I think, I mean, one of the other things about Miller is, you know, before he started, you know, Mad Max or any of this filmmaking stuff, he was a doctor. Right. Um, right. you know, right. so bring that up with Lorenzo's oil. But right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But, but, <laughs> but I think one of the things that, that makes his work so distinct is, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, the Australia thing certainly fits into it because, and, and the not quite Hollywood exploitation stuff because you know there's a kind of a, a, a you know Australians are certainly not nearly as uptight as Americans there's a sense Very of true. there's a sense of lawlessness that's that permeates through Australia um you know that kind of lends itself to you know only an Australian can make a movie like Mad Max and get away with it you yeah. know or even uh, something like the picnic at hanging rock right but i mean but what i'm saying but i mean in in the case of this it's like you know we're taking you're, we're talking about things like you know oh we have this action chase scene let's put a baby in the middle of the road yeah yeah okay let's do it and yeah. film it and and <laughs> you know, it'll be part of the action and it's not doing it to be cool it's it, i mean miller's doing it and, it and it's very tragic but he's doing it yeah, and he's um, fearless in that regard he's very fearless in that regard. he does not he, he does not hold anything back mm-hmm. um so you get that Australian sense that, that that Australian lawlessness, that Australian obsession with cars and automobiles, uh, combined with you know having the precision and patience and brains of a surgeon or, or doctor that knows that every part of the body matters, every part of the body connects to some other mm. part that makes it tick. That you know 
that has to be working in order for this part of the body to be working that makes everything go and makes the whole thing a whole. And his films are like that often. The Mad Max films and the and the Babe films and the Happy V films are like that. They're, they have these little strands going through all of them that uh, you know that you're not quite sure how they fit together yet. Um, but they eventually come together at the end uh, to create a whole. Like, oh, this little setup here that we that we put in, uh, you know, it seemed may seem a little bit odd, but now here we're bringing it back, and now it's it's all coming together, and it's and we're creating this immersive emotional experience that's exciting. So I I think that's where that's what that's what you know distinguishes his work. And with Mad Max, um, the first Mad Max film, you know, he's he he he's he's not doing uh, so much of that because he's really just getting his feet wet at this point. Yeah. Um, and, 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 but also not being that nervous to uh, not try some chase scenes and some, you know, death defying action scenes, you know, uh, you know, that are, that would kill most people um, if they tried it on a, on, on a low budget shoot. Um, but, He's in Australia. They they're they're gung ho. They're they're da- they're daredevils out there. Mm-hmm. So um and and there's a sort of glee that comes with with that uh with that sort of thing. I mean he's making a he's making a western. You know I mean the movie is a western. It is a kind of um it's it's the storytelling is mostly visual. There's not a lot of dialogue in it. Or, he was very inspired by silent films and yeah. Buster Keaton. Oh, and things. it shows. It absolutely shows. Yeah. Um, and, you know, but at the same time, I mean, I think you know the first Mad Max is still like it's my least favorite of the of the four films. But I, I mean, I mean, I like it a lot. But there is something that, I mean, uh, you know, that I don't think he quite nailed, and or he wouldn't nail until he wouldn't get right until a little bit later, which is you know uh, the 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 human aspect of it. I mean, I I I I definitely know that he wanted to not just make an Ozploitation film. He wanted to make a really good film uh, in the Ozploitation vein, but one that had sort of an emotional connection to it. Um, you know, that this, that these deaths matter, you know, like if, if, you know, um, the, uh, you know, the death of Max's wife isn't exploited. It's, 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 um, you know, uh, it, 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 it's something that is tragic. Yeah. And it's but, uh, lingered on for a little while and yeah. you get to see the ramifications in the hospital and everything. And right. You know, it's not just, uh, you know, uh, something exploitive and groan and gory and just we're off to the next scene you get to experience his his pain from that you know from that whole thing yeah but i you know I, it's it's interesting because you're focusing like a little bit at the beginning there about you know how how he was a doctor and sort of focusing on um precision um in terms of the body and stuff and how he, you know how all that matters i was thinking <laughs> surgical precision when it comes to editing yeah cuz i I will agree that the first Mad Max is probably the weakest of the series. However, um, it's certainly the blueprint for what a confident um, action director he is. Mm-hmm. He uh, like the f- there's this the fast zooms, close-ups of eyes, mm-hmm. cars gliding past, random screams of onlookers, 
and then the final moment of collision, it just all feels so perfectly choreographed. Like yeah. I'm watching this and going, this is so beautifully edited. Yeah. And obviously you feel that way later on. <laughs> right. And you know it wasn't perfect. I no, mean, it of wasn't not. Not, a lot of things happen on, on these films that weren't so meant precise. to happen. Yeah. And just like exactly how it should be. Right. And and that's the thing, is like he has the patience. Like when you're a doctor, you have to have and I pardon the pun, <laughs> patience. Um yeah. and uh and and you know i think a lot of directors would cut corners where he does not uh in mm. in terms of production in terms of like waiting for the perfect shot waiting for the perfect uh car or waiting for the perfect you know stunt or whatever um and not going forward until it's perfectly framed perfectly uh you know uh choreographed and edited and saved and everything like that and i think a lot of you know filmmakers wouldn't go that extra mile to make it something special like you mentioned um the eyes you know close-up of the eyes you know he went out he went that extra mile to like create a prosthetic that had eyes bulging out of it <laughs> uh, for like what a split second yep. shot you know like who why the would the final they, death of the yeah, yeah i mean nobody would uh, you know when you're talking about a low low budget film most directors would you know cut that corner and be like we don't need that let's you know the, right. the chase is good enough um yeah it's just impeccably edited i mean yeah. i will agree though that with the first man max the transitioning into scenes of seeing max as like an everyman i think pacing wise it's a little off mm-hmm. and it's probably just because it's a debut film yeah. and he sort of hasn't found his rhythm yet right yeah i, I definitely think that's it uh, because I mean, he, uh, God knows he he. I mean, the movie does hit the ground running. It is in terms in 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 true Mad Max fashion. I mean, it it does set the. You're right. It sets a blueprint uh, right right from the get go because the movie starts with a chase. Yeah. And you know you get that the camera low to the ground on the highway, um, and you know giving a perspective that was unique at the you know unique at the time for for you know, the Ozploitation films. I mean, there was, you know, it was shot in scope or uh, it was 235. And, um, you know, uh, very cinematic, mm-hmm. um, you know, go, and and also just creating, you know, also setting the, the, the backdrop or the, uh, the blueprint is uh, one of my favorite things of any Mad Max film uh, is what reading the credits. And oh, looking okay. at the character names yeah, yeah, that he yeah, comes yeah. up with, you know, like mud guts, you know, <laughs> so this is John Smith has mud guts, uh, you know, uh, the toe cutter, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, you know, I especially love it when it's at the beginning of the film. Right. And you just go, what is this? What am what I are, watching? Yeah. <laughs> what, what is you, this going to be? In for here? Yeah, exactly. And every time it, it never uh, it, it, it always makes me smile really big because I say the villain here is pretty memorable, like right from. I think it's the threatening moment he, uh, I think he's with like a train attendant and mm. he says like, his name was Knight Rider. Remember yeah. him when you look up at the night sky. Yeah, exactly. Right. There's all kinds of, uh, you know, the, the, I mean, the, the, the lines of dialogue like that are, uh, is another uh, thing that connects all of his films. Um, he just, he doesn't, he doesn't take the screenwriting for for granted he he's very careful with his dialogue yeah and we'll get into that later but um but yeah i i mean i i enjoy the mad max i mean as a as a you know a, a low budget 
you know movie that put helped put Australia on the map. Uh, it it holds up a lot. Yeah, of it, it grossed holds a up. lot too at the time. It grossed a lot in Australia. In America, it had a hard time finding its audience. Oh, okay. um, in America, actually, they redubbed the film. Oh, that's right. In, yeah, yeah, they I dubbed it in that. in an American accent, and it just didn't work <laughs> at all. And it still didn't find its audience. Um, and I think it came out on video initially in that version. Uh, and only until it, it, I think only until within the last fifteen years or so has the movie been available in its original Australian version. Hmm. Um, so it wasn't a huge hit in America until until Road Warrior came out, and that sort of that was the movie that really put Mad Max, the first one, you know, uh, on the American in the American consciousness. So, do you think I'm crazy in? I, I mean, I didn't actually like research this or look it up on Google just to see, but were the Coen brothers at all inspired by Mad Max for Raising Arizona? Uh, <laughs> I don't know that either, actually. I didn't look that up. Um, it's funny because like, there's just you know the shot of her running down the highway with that baby, and then all of a yeah. sudden... You know the 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 the, the motorcyclists sweep by, and mm-hmm. you see you know the the baby's shoe, flying. right? And I just couldn't help but think of raising Arizona. I mean, I know it's it's. I mean, it would be hard not to. I mean, that whole character of Leonard Smalls yeah. is very Mad Max. It I is. mean, yeah, yeah, it, it, I'm sure there's an unconscious influence there of right. some kind. Because um, that's that's another you know example of inventive camera work. That's right. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no. I mean, the movie is definitely influential. Not just, I mean, the series, but the, the first film also. I think is is uh, still, you know, getting. Uh, it's still it's still educating filmmakers on visual storytelling. Oh yeah, hundred percent. I and, still I still enjoy revisiting it, and I do get like a little nostalgia from you know simply knowing that my dad loved it. He just yeah. loved that movie so much. Um, it, I don't know if we ever like had a conversation though about the Road Warrior. I mm-hmm. just remember like there was something about the original Mad Max that just clicked with him mm-hmm. so much, and just you know having that experience where um, you know we get to see the catharsis of him getting you know the final villain with the with the truck. Yeah, was something that you know I just remember us both getting joy out of, and you know, and he's a fallible character. He's not like a super superhero he right he gets shot in the leg and all that stuff too. yeah so, and mean, and and miller doesn't tension. yeah and miller uh, doesn't play that scene for for joy like he's not right. doing it to you know he doesn't you know it's it's he's not after the audience's bloodlust or anything mm-hmm. like that it's actually very dour moments because you know max isn't walking away from a big explosion with a smirk on his face you know like you'd yeah. see today in an action film he's driving away and his face is just blank and he's kind of he's left with nothing now it's like well yeah i lo- he, he he avenged the you know the 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 murder of his his wife and kids but now he's he's just a kind of a shell of a man who's doesn't really have anything it's um, interesting to see how he started out in terms of the character arc yeah. of Max and how he sort of became who he is, you know, because like, I think initially at the very beginning, he does seem like, um, a, a good intentioned cop mm-hmm. of sorts. And then sort of just after what happens to him and his, and his family, he becomes 
the road warrior the road warrior <laughs> yeah so yeah. then so yeah so mad max is a kind of a of a hit uh internationally in a way and then warner brothers says we want to we want a mad max we want you to make a sequel yeah um and he, you know so miller's got more of a budget and he's got the big studio backing and um you know warner brothers uh you know said yeah let's do this yeah he was reading some Joseph Campbell, as a lot of sure. filmmakers around the time are are are, are fascinated with mythology mm-hmm. and uh, you know just the arc of the hero, the mythical hero. Um, and you know it's interesting too when I think about you know in terms of all the films, the way Max accomplishes something brave or defeats the villain, and how he sets off on his own at at the end, almost like John Wayne at the end of Searchers, yeah, to where that mythical hero that sort of you know joseph campbell focused on so much in you know in his books and stuff is just it's prevalent it's everywhere yeah you know it's in star wars it's in in everything sure um and so in road warrior i um to me this still is this still just really blows me away every single time i watch it and i i feel uh most connected to this story to this to the way millard chooses to uh, present this post-apocalyptic world um, in a very sort of raw, raw and um, stripped-down way uh, that's sort of the decrepit urban space of, um, of the Australian landscape of the first one is kind of gone. Here it's replaced by open desert. Yeah. And, you know, it's a lot of the archetypal essentials are here, sort of riding out of nowhere on a sing- single-minded quest Mm-hmm. And he's there to help, uh, essentially, the citizens. You know, I mean, not necessarily at first. He is, you know, kind of there to serve his own needs. But um, after a while, he he's realizes... The re- he's the reluctant hero. Re- yeah, reluctant yeah. hero. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but he's also there to help sow the seeds of civilization in some regard. Yeah. Although I think that's mo- that happens more in beyond thunder yeah 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 but uh, i can see that but yeah yeah, no this is i mean um you know this is also miller's first uh stab at giving the mad max series a message of its own right because it's all it is supposedly i mean it's about a nuclear devastation which is why the world is the way it is Mm -hmm. um it just like society crumbled and you know this is this movie came out in 1982 when you know the sort of cold war thing was still kind of happening and there's like you know the threat of nuclear annihilation um was kind of a big subject back then and you know miller kind of tapped into that and and sort of in you know used it to sort of invent a new genre of of film which was the post-apocalyptic uh you know you know sort of dread uh dreadful future um you know with with rogue gangs and um you know <laughs> leather uh you know costumes and mohawks and you know um you know making up re- remaking society uh and and you know it basically just sort of wrote the book on how to make that kind of a film yeah uh, there are because there are a lot of copycats in the wake of the road warrior um no doubt yeah and uh so it it again it's it's sort of furthering the influence of of you know fantasy filmmaking and action filmmaking um and here i mean 
you know, you got he's also bringing in characters, the kind of characters that he would bring in later on. I mean, you know, uh, let's start with the connection to, you know, what is the connection between, um, you know, the road warrior and, and babe and happy feet and all that? Well, one of the main characters is a dog. Yeah. Um, you know, Max's dog. And then right. there you got the feral kid who is pretty much an animal himself. And you got this. I um, love the kid. You got love the feral kid. Yeah. And um, sorry, hold on. Let me take <laughs> care of this. Uh, speaking of animals, my cat is acting up. Um, feral cat. Feral cat. Um, and so you, there's this kind of relationship between Max and the feral kid, which is kind of like father son, but it's also man and animal, you know, animal owner kind of a thing. Yeah. You know, it's like having yeah, yeah, another I pet. Um, in a way, like, you know, the kid is making, you know, wolf noises, you know, at night. And, you know, um, yeah, there's a sense of like surrogate families forming right. throughout a lot of his work, I think. Right. And, uh, you know, you got, you know, and there's stuff in, in the Road Warrior that comes back later in um, elements of the story that come back later in Fury Road. Um, you got the sort of love story going on on the side with two, you know, secondary characters. You know, in this oh, yeah, case, yeah, yeah. it's the gyro captain and uh, the blonde woman whose name uh, escapes me. Um, you know, and and Miller is is really throwing in, you know, these sort of more. He, he's he, I think this movie he's getting more successful with working in the human element to this whole thing to to these kinds of stories. Thumbtack. Colin's cat was playing with a thumbtack. So, we had to take a brief break here, but we'll be right back to continue our conversation on the road, Warrior! Okay, and we're back. Um, Before we rudely interrupted by your cat... Um, we, we will it will be rudely interrupted momentarily. <laughs> we just spent the last 15 minutes saying, oh, the pizza's going to be here any minute. Let's just stay off and we'll pick up. <laughs> we'll just we'll just use this break to wait for the pizza. Yeah. It's getting really annoying. Uh, so we're just going to maybe it'll be an hour plow through know. here. You never know. Right. So, yeah. So, like, I, I think what I was getting at uh, mm-hmm. was that with the Road Warrior, uh, Miller's getting better at d- displaying the human elements of the story. Sure. By having a love story, or feels, a semi-love story in the middle. more fully realized. Right, right. And, you know, he's trying to, you know, you know, also convey that, you know, when people die, it matters. Yeah. Um, you know, especially, I mean, you know, the good guys and, uh, you know, and even the bad guys, like the bad guys aren't always bad guys in his films. Not always. Uh, there's, there are anti-heroes and then there are like anti-villains as well, especially in, in Thunder, in Thunderdome. Um, I mean, in this one, I guess Humongous, yeah, Humongous is a bad guy and, and like, like a Morton Joe in Fury Road, he's got a mask on, um, you know, and speaks through through the microphone, through the mask, uh, so you never really see him. Um, and oh, kind of like Darth Vader, yeah, that too. <laughs> and uh, you know, also in Fury in, in in Road Warrior, just like Fury Road, that you know they got the prisoners strapped to the front of the car. Um, yeah, 
you know, and you got guys. There's a guy. There's a, a character on a bungee harness uh, at one point in the film, which will come back later in 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 Thunderdome. So he's setting stuff up, and and there's a lot of, and and you know he's he, you could see in the production design and the costume design, he's setting up this world where uh, everything is being. Um, uh, every little item that's left after nuclear devastation is being used and fashioned for something else. You okay, know, yeah. it's everything is usable, but in a different way now. Like the, like the characters are wearing a lot of the characters on the in in that little enclave uh, are wearing you know football shoulder pads. Right. You know, um, right. and you know, but they're using, but it's more of a of a practical thing for them. They're not they're tackling each other. They're just being resourceful and. Right. And, you know, there is that kind of 80s-ness to the look of some of the fashions of the film, which kind of make it stand out a little dated. Um, you know, the assless chaps, is that's kind of funny. Um, yeah, uh, you know, so and, and the bullets that you see. Sure. Um, you know, it's funny because, like, once you told me, and I agree with this, and I'm sure a lot of people would cite this as well, that uh, a filmmaker like Terrence Malick sort of uses you know, uh, cinema to tell poetry, George Miller, especially in the case of road warrior might use cinema to, to sort of craft a punk rock song. Mm, And, you know, here, like the characters look like they could be out of the warriors. Right. uh, Right. Yeah. The warriors. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And you know, there's like, there's some genuinely genuine surprises that even to this day, you know, rewatching it, like the boomerang death is kind of, Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the, the feral kid is responsible for, you know, the death of kind of a, not necessarily an important character to us, but to one of the main bad guys. Right, you know? sure. So there are some, you know, shocking moments in this that, uh, you know, I'm kind of unprepared for in, in, in this world. Um, yeah. Yeah, so and, that's, and that's and that's that's the thing. The boomerang scene, it just kind of brings me to, it. it, it reminds me that, you know, Miller doesn't just stick with, cars and guns as a means for mayhem and violence he's very imaginative you know the, the mm-hmm. boomerang scene is is really funny and yeah, with you, the fingers. uniquely australian of course um sure but you know just it's it and and a great it's just a great way to use that kind of a of a weapon um, and he's very inventive about that sort of thing and i like that both in this and fury road when Max has, you know, a moment of selfishness, he's kind of punished for it, and is almost mm-hmm. forced to go back and be selfless. Yeah, and you know, sort of realize that I have to help the collective. Right, and that's what's going to sort of redeem myself. You know, that's how yeah, I'm, and that that's a, that's a great overall sort of mythological message to convey, mm-hmm. and it serves the story and the characters, and it it it, it allows us to root for him more. Maybe the original Mad Max was more about the micro level, the sort of I'm getting revenge because of what happened to me personally. And here with Road Warrior, it's more about the macro level. It's more about, you know, helping society in a way. So I kind of like that um, contrast or sort of like an evolution of why I need to do something. You know, it's not just about personal stakes. It's, It's about helping out a large group of people for um you know for the for the greater good if you will right and you know he's not in it for himself because he never stays with these people that he helps yeah you know? yeah um, 
So he's always he's always got to be the road warrior. He's always got to be the lone warrior. Mm-hmm. Um, which is what makes I think Beyond Thunderdome an interesting film. But before we get to that, um, the, the, there's a little detour um, <laughs> that he, uh, with uh, Twilight Zone the movie. That is true. That is very true. I. I will say, um, you know, I mean, we're going to be ranking our favorite George Miller movies, which is going to be very difficult. But, you know, as of this moment, it's it's so hard for me to just outright say, like, okay, this is definitively the best Mad Max movie. I'm sticking with my belief that the Road Warrior is is the best. <laughs> okay, that's that's you know? fair. I mean, you know. I'm I'm sort of sticking to that maybe just because of its aesthetics being a little bit more appealing to me. Um, you know, the lack of CGI, uh, like I mentioned, even with, with the original Mad Max, there's more purity to it. Sure. Um, you know, that's not to take anything away from Fury Road when we get to it. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm definitely curious to talk more about your first experience with Twilight Zone, the movie, because... I saw it way too young as a kid, and certain elements, obviously the Joe Dante bunny, scared the hell out of me. Um, yeah. But his piece is particularly interesting. Yeah. Um, I kind of had the same experience. I did see it in the theater uh, with the same friend I saw Mad Max with, or uh, Road Warrior. Um, sat in the very front row, and uh, yeah, it, it cut me up uh, that night, mm-hmm. uh, the, last two, the last two segments. Um I, I like Miller's segment a lot. I, I don't think it's it's it, it doesn't mesh with the bulk of his filmography thematically. It's just kind of a one-off thing that is just kind of fun to watch. Uh, John Lithgow, I think, is is tremendous in it. And I think I realized uh, the last time I watched it, which was a few weeks ago, uh, that I like Dante's piece a little bit more. Yeah, mainly because uh, Dante has a kid in his film that is not annoying, and uh, Miller has the little girl in his film who is really annoying. From Cloak and Dagger, no less. Right, <laughs> and I know she's kind of her character is kind of supposed to be annoying. Sure, but she's annoying. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> I hate the moment with the dummy. Yeah, <laughs> that's part of annoys me. Right, right, and I think that's kind of a. And and there's one part in the in in the in it that doesn't make any sense when when the 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 fat security guard guy uh, picks the little girl up and says, "Oh, you need to come sit over here with me." I was like, "Why?" Oh yeah, um, that is weird. It is weird. <laughs> like why why does she have to do that? What I don't yeah. Um, nevertheless, uh, it's a great it's such a great film for the whole project to end on because it's so visceral. Yeah. It's the perfect third act kind of film uh, for what is otherwise a very uneven project. Um, Clearly with the first two. Yeah. Landis is, I think is interesting. It just has that dark shadow hanging over it with Vic Morrow's death. Yeah. Spielberg's is the worst thing Spielberg has ever done. Agreed. Uh, just a really cloying and really, you could tell it was made by a young guy who's never set foot in a nursing home. It's like uh, an even worse <laughs> version of Cocoon. Yeah. I um, kind of, I kind of a soft spot I for kinda, Cocoon. Yeah, but, I, do, I do too. I do too. There are but, about but, that but, like. but that's another movie where it's like the people who made this have never been in a nursing home in their right. life. And these guys, the, these characters can clearly get around just fine on their own. They do not need to be in a retirement community. That's true. Uh, that's a separate argument. I, um, I don't really have a fear of flying, but I do have 
claustrophobic tendencies and i i remember vividly feeling anxious during one flight just because we were in the middle of a terrible thunderstorm yeah and seeing lightning that close in clouds yeah was something that i was not prepared for to where i think my like my experience seeing this this short film as a kid sort of came back in memory while I was in flight and I thought oh my god that's this is this is too much this is almost too right. much stimuli going on outside this window I didn't expect to see a gremlin or anything but um yeah the, the claustrophobia is, of being on a plane is used to great effect well not here. just in the plane but in the very beginning in the bathroom where oh, he yeah, uses yeah, yeah, that yeah. he uses that distorted lens uh, at the beginning with John Lithgow just kind of freaking out in the bathroom and he, he's sort of like it's I, I don't know the camera terminology but everything's sort of like elongated and distorted and at a canted angle and yeah, there's a lot of Dutch angles Dutch kind of angles yeah. yeah and he's it's just like you you're like right away you're inside this guy's head and it's not a good place to be and Lithgow is just so great I mean his, his face is just pale white the entire time um yeah i was thinking a little bit too because there are some directors where the manic energy gets exhausting it gets um cumbersome and taxing after a while like someone like tony scott in certain films especially later on in his career like something like domino is almost nauseating right in how fast and crazy editing it is whereas miller when he does it in something like you know you know it's even in the the first act of lorenzo's oil which we're going to get to the way it's edited, it feels like it's done for a purpose. And same goes for, for Twilight Zone, uh, for, for his piece here, where it's like, it's fast, it's manic, it's, there's a lot of quick cuts at some points, but it's all to serve what's, go- what's taking place in now, this environment. Right. Now, there's a bit of a connection here between uh, this film and the first Mad Max. Oh, really? We mentioned in the first Mad Max, there's a quick split second shot of the, you know right before a, a crash moment of impact uh a character's eyes sort of bulging out of their heads when it happens right there is a shot in this film where uh, the moment when john lithgow the se- when he you know he he's, he's seen the gremlin or he thinks he's seen something and the stewardess, you know, closes the window and she says, "You just calm down, calm down." And he's and he 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 tries to calm down. He's sleeping, and the windows close, and he's like tempted to open it, and and finally he opens it, and there's a very quick zoom in shot of Lithgow when the moment he opens it, and his eye is his eyes are pop out of his head in a really disturbing that. manner. Because uh, I'm always like, I really like the slow build. Yeah. Where, you know, he's trying to sleep. He's even closing his eyes. And it gets to a point where he even looks in the camera. Right. He opens his eyes and looks in the camera. And then he opens the window really fast. And there's the gremlin. Right. But if you watch it, you will see his eye pop out. Of, like, well, at least one of his eyes just pop out of his head in a really big way. Nice. I remember when I saw it as a kid, I, I uh, when I watched, re- repeatedly watched it on, on VHS, I would watch. I would go through that frame by frame to see. <laughs> did I see? It looked like his head, his eye bulged out of his head, like a Tex Avery cartoon, and it it does. It did. Um, you yeah, can actually, if you yeah. if you Google it, you'll there's uh, somebody did like a side by side image thing where that shows that frame. Um, oh, nice. It's that kind of thing that like, man, who else would think to do that? You know, like what went into that? 
uh, clearly it, it was like, okay, we need to hire a guy to make a prosthetic. We need to figure out how that by bulge is going to look and we're, we're it's going to be it's going to be a barely noticeable not even a split second thing but it's impactful if it implants you see itself it. into your subconscious right without realizing it right exactly and that's what really kubrick did that a lot sure <laughs> so um yeah and then you know even the moment after that where he's like it's practically like the camera's really high up as you know like he's tumbling to the ground and everybody's around him and stuff and that's that kind of an angle, especially in an airplane, is just yeah. kind of remarkable. <laughs> yeah, it's, ama- it's amazing what he what he did with that confined space. Yeah, um, yeah. So I, I I think that's a really good highlight. I mean, even even if you just want to revisit some of Miller's career and just enjoy that for you know like twenty minutes, it's it's definitely worth seeing. Mm-hmm. Now the next one we're going to talk about. I know you are a huge fan of. I'm a fan. I'm a you've, big you've, defender. You've had to defend Fury, this thing of Thunderdome quite a bit. I mean, and I don't know why. I still don't know why. <laughs> I mean, um, when it came out, when Batman, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome came out, it was pretty well regarded. Yeah, as Ebert a, said it was the best of the series. He, yeah, and I mean, Siskel, Ebert, uh, Dan Geyer of the Chicago Daily Herald out here. I mean, they all gave it four stars. I mean, I remember that there was like a two-page spread when the film came out of all these glowing critic reviews all over the all over the ad and then <laughs> somewhere along the line within the la- you know 20 years after its release it was decided that it wasn't good i remember I, 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 there was we did something on wgn once where we all read our like top 20 science fiction movies or something for mm-hmm. i think it was for like the online film critic society poll sure yeah and uh I remember when you it was it might have been you know pretty high up like maybe number ten or something, and uh, you said Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, and uh, I remember Nick going, "Dude, over the Road Warrior, Colin," <laughs> and you're like, "Yeah, yeah." Well, I mean, I you know, I mean, maybe today. I don't know if I'd go that far today. Maybe I'd, I'd I think I've changed my. You were drunk. My, Just my admit no, it. no, no. I may have changed the order on that. But what strikes me <laughs> about Fury uh, about Thunderdome um, is what a there are so many uh, there are so many ways that Miller could have you know made another Road Warrior with I mean kind of did with Fury Road um, but or, or that it, that could have been Mad Max Three sure instead he goes in this completely opposite direction. You know, he's got more studio backing. He's got more money. He's got more stuff that he can play with. He's got Tina Turner. He's got Tina Turner. And he's got <laughs> Mel Gibson, who is now a household name. Yeah. Um, and he, instead of, you know, doing the raw, gritty, post-apocalyptic future, I mean, it, there is that, but instead it, it, he tells a much gentler, softer story that is actually more optimistic than... Uh, we're used to seeing in a post-apocalyptic film. Um, yeah, it's very hopeful, and I was I was taken aback by that. Right, and it's uh, you know one of the things. I mean, it it shares something in common with another futuristic movie that has kind of uh, been sort of lambasted in the last year, Tomorrowland. And is it's interesting in this film that the characters are looking for Tomorrow Morrowland. Yeah, I was surprised <laughs> that the reaction um, to Tomorrowland because I, I I enjoyed it. I, I didn't think it was yeah. great, but I certainly didn't understand the insanely negative and dismissive reaction to it. Right, 
And so, I mean, with this film, I mean, it started with an idea that Miller and his co-screenwriter had about this. It started with the kids. It started with the tribe and, um, you know, sort of creating a kind of Lost Boys, Lord of the Flies type of thing. Um, Peter Pan Lost Boys. Um, yeah. And, Which feels like a detour to me. It is a detour. and But that's where the story started. And then... Uh, there was, uh, there was some. They weren't sure if you know Mel Gibson was going to sign on for that sort of thing, uh, but he did, and so they went ahead with it. If he hadn't, they would have used that idea somewhere else. They would have made that movie in a, in another way. Um, but Mel Gibson really liked the story, and I think that's a credit to Miller. Is that the way he makes sequels? He is not out to just regurgitate everything that made the original so successful he reinvents he reimagines and takes the risk of alienating the fans of the franchise by creating something different and a little more challenging and subverting their and subverting audiences expectations now so anyway i can see why audiences are kind of you know when you know when the kids show up that they're a little disappointed but uh, because the movie, I will, I will contend, the movie has uh, totally changes pace with that that scene, and um, it, and it is it is slightly jarring, and it is it it is hard for the movie to sort of regain its momentum in the third act when Miller decides he's going to finally give everybody the the Mad Max chase scene that they've been waiting for you took for a the long words time. Out of my mouth. I grow a little <laughs> restless there, and I, I mean I feel yeah. bad because I hate to be that guy. That's kind of no, like, no. But the eh. desert scene does run a little too long. It does. I, I agree. Um, and uh, some of Maurice Jarre's, I'm, I'm mispronouncing that, uh, some of his score, I think, is a little bit overblown. Um, so, so yeah. Oh, yeah, we I forgot mean, to mention Brian May did the score for Road Warrior. Ro- and it's so good. Yeah, not the Brian May from Queen, but a, right. a different Brian May. Yeah. But um, so, yeah, so I, I can understand some of the criticism for what, what, for, for, for Thunderdome. But, what I don't understand is the outright hatred for it because I think the movie is filled with so much invention and so much imagination that just surpasses anything that's in the other two films. Um, the first two films, the, uh, <clears throat> I mean, just the Thunderdome, the, 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 uh, barter town on its own barter is, a, amazing. is a beautiful piece of production design. Yeah. Uh, something that, you know, not a lot of films were doing at that time, you know, so Blade Runner certainly succeeded at creating its own dystopian world and, and, but did so with a lot of special effects. This is all on the set. This is all built and constructed and you see these little details in it, all these little artifacts that again are being re, re, um, reused or re, uh, um, you know, being refashioned. Refashioned. Uh, yeah, I mean, and then you you get the characters themselves and the way they're talking. I mean, the first part of Beyond Thunderdome is phenomenal in terms of the dialogue. It's very tough, guy. It's very film noir. Um, yeah, you know, know at that once was, that was surprising <laughs> to experience in this world. Right. I mean, uh, like when Max is talking to the bald guy uh, who looks like uh, Sydney Greenstreet uh, when he <laughs> says, um, you know, like. You know, make a deal. Uh, you give us twenty four hours, and then you can have your camels back. And Max says, "Sounds like a bargain." He says, "It's not. It's talk." And it's like, you know, I <laughs> uh, love that. You know, yeah, no, um, I mean, th- 
I like this reinvention of civilization that Thunderdome has. I mean, I'll give I'll give Miller credit almost pretty much right out of every right out of the gate with almost every film. He he approaches it with audacity and decide and decides I'm going to do something different instead of like pandering. Right. And here it's you know you know especially with the barter town and 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 the actual you know. Um, cage match thing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like, like a Roman gladiator of right. a story yeah. that he chose to present here, and it's that that whole sequence is great. That obviously the the train chase and everything in the last act is great. Um, you know, I mean, again, it's just the the, the, the detour with the with the children and the tribe and everything. I wish I could actively embrace it and just go. You know what? It's a different movie here. And, and it's, it's a different, different pace, pace. It's a different tone. Uh, I'm on board for it. I think it's more like I'm so acclimated to George Miller as more of an energetic director yeah. that suddenly it's it's kind of a letdown. But I, I, I imagine that if I'd seen this movie back when it first came out, back you know before I had these experiences with more visceral. Um, you know, uh, sequences like with Fury Road and with Road Warrior and things like that, I'd be more um, forgiving about what happens, you know, midway through this movie. Yeah, I mean, it is it is a lot to take in. It's a lot for it's a lot to ask of a viewer to sort of go down this road, especially if you watch all three films in order. Yes. I mean, in one sitting, I mean. Um, that being said, I mean, uh, I think that the the i think the tribe stuff is fascinating because in and it would probably it probably would work better if it was its own film of another kind but i think what's going on here is that miller is using this tribe to sort of talk about um how in the in this new civilization that not only are these items and artifacts being refashioned but faith has to be refashioned also faith and hope faith yeah. and hope and but like these kids are like worship this god called captain walker and they think mel gibson is they think max is, is captain walker and they have the whole mythology of captain walker and how um he is the savior and how he was he was going to lead the children to the promised land hmm. um but you know the plane crashed and uh you know the promised land or tomorrow morrow land is just a distant dream a distant memory until captain walker comes back for them and, and they you put know on a pedestal and- yeah and they they just sort of construct their own faith their own religion around it uh, based on these just little fragments of facts that they know because it is somehow comforting and god i love the idea of that i do want that to be its own yeah and and uh, that's where i mean that's where the whole thing started and in a way i mean Max does become the Captain Walker like he did in The Road Warrior sure. where he's this sort of reluctant savior, reluctant hero and he does lead them to a promised land and when they end up in the city at the end um but uh again he doesn't stay with them. He could have easily been a, you know, he could have easily lived up to that that figure and and been that that leader that god but he has already seen what that kind of um 
he's already seen what that does to people. That's where the anti-entity character comes in, but you know, Tina Turner's character yeah. who was, who is not a villain in the film in the traditional sense. She was very much a hero herself. And then she was put in charge and now she's a different person and he can see himself probably becoming given that kind of power. Right. And he doesn't want that, but he does want, to he he's he's now at the point in the third movie in where he is more willing to help uh for the greater cause and if that means you know i mean you know stealing the uh the dwarf character the the master um because he's you know somehow smarter than everybody else and putting his character taking his character out of the the pit that is thunderdome and putting him in a better setting where he's he would be more useful in mm-hmm. teaching these kids and getting a better future started he, he'll do that and but then he's he's got to walk away and i that's why i mean i i think the i think the stuff of the tribe is is wonderful i mean there's kind of a creepiness to it uh the way they chant yeah. uh the way they sort of misuse technology they think that this you know this this spinning black disc that is obviously just an LP is somehow a a, a satellite to to contact <laughs> to talk to Captain Walker, and really it's just this record that teaches people how to speak French, and 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 that itself I think is really poetic because it's it's like when the kids finally listen to that realize what that disc is when max puts the needle on the record and it spins and they listen to it and it's some guy you know saying repeat after me Le jour de vin. Le jour de vin. <laughs> i'm going home i'm going home and right. it's like it's like okay well we now we're learning a new language and it's time to learn a new way of life um and no, that's why it adds thematic weight I think to the yeah. movie overall. Yeah, and I, I won't deny that. Yeah, and I think it's I think that's what makes the trilogy when it was a trilogy. So that's why I always th- thought of it as a perfect trilogy because it's it keeps building on the world that it created in the first film and it doesn't regurgitate everything, it reinvents instead. And they're all distinctive. They're films. all distinctive films and they're there is an arc to Max's character that's very subtle, and ve- but very uh, potent, and um, and and really just uh, I think it, I think it, I don't think there's ever been a, a trilogy like it. I, I mean, eventually it's not going to be a, it's not a trilogy anymore. But for the longest time, the for Mel 30, Gibson trilogy, for maybe. the Mel Gibson trilogy for thirty years, it yeah. was a trilogy, and I thought just a a perfectly constructed trilogy. With minor flaws here and there, but um, that's how I feel about Back to the Future. I thought like that's kind of my in my eyes the perfect trilogy with minor flaws here and there. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, no, I I will say that um, you know I've seen Thunderdome three times now, and I I do like it more the more I watch it, and especially you know framing it in in light of all the other films. And sort of taking it in in your perspective on the tribe and everything and what it means in the overall grand scheme of things, yeah. I can certainly add more credibility to it rather than sort of dismissing it as like, well, that's a detour that doesn't work, and I don't know why it's there, you know? Because I think, well, I mean, that's the first thing people say when, uh, why don't you like Thunderdome? Oh, it's the one with the kids. Yeah. Okay, yeah, but that's, that's really dismissive. Watch it again. You know, I mean, there's there's such great stuff in it. I mean, 
and you know he and again he is playing more with this he is he's growing more concerned with uh you know nuclear annihilation and this film is definitely yeah, yeah. a statement about nuclear war and and uh you know that was very you know again very prevalent at the time especially now in the mid 80s there's a reference to uh the atomic cafe like the there's a there um there's a a place in thunderdome called the atomic cafe when anti entity says uh i was i used to be a hero or a, like uh i i was a cop too uh until the day after the day after being the big uh, movie at the time the tv movie at the time Anti-entity, about entity what a name what a great name i mean yeah. there's so many great names like at the beginning of this movie it. pig killer you know iron bar <laughs> black finger i hope that's not babe. screw loose mr skyfish I, you know obvious i think it's more obvious and overt at this point but um you know in terms of thematic consistency environmental issues are clearly sure. on george miller's mind oh uh, yeah definitely so, yeah, and that'll know, come back later gasoline dependence mm-hmm. uh water dependence and uh you know here with nuclear uh concerns mm-hmm. and uh and it, you know and he doesn't feet <laughs> right and the thing about thunderdome is like it's fi- you know he's he's making sure that like the apocalypse isn't supposed to be cool you know, like, like, uh, like a lot of action movies, uh, you know, or a lot of dystopian futuristic movies, you know, or, or, or even the road warrior, you know, you look at the fashion and you look at the weapons and you look at the action. It's like, this looks go- so cool. It'd be kind of cool to live in this kind of a lawless vision or a lawless world. I mean, and, you know, he's saying, no, 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 it's really not. This is, no. we, need, we need to like keep, you know, our, our wits about ourselves because this nuclear annihilation is very real uh and you know there's a reason why it's in the news and why we need to be careful uh with with the whole idea of this um because this is this while this may be a hollywood blockbuster it's not supposed to be you know cool in that sense we're supposed to figure out a way out of this situation and and become better people in a better 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 civilization speaking of wanting to get out of situations George Miller himself has gone on record as saying that um, a few times throughout the making of The Witches of Eastwick, he wanted to get out. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So 1987, uh, Witches of Eastwick comes out in the summer. And yeah, it's his first non-Mad Max film, at least in America. I think he may have. I I know in his career he's done like little. I mean, he's done like made-for-TV series and and, and films. I wish I could get a hold of those. I'd be curious to see. Right. Even if they're kind of like dry and stuffy i'd still would like to see them. yeah i would too I've, I've never seen them i don't think they've ever been made available here in the states but uh yeah. but yeah witches of eastwick is his kind of uh you know his he's putting the mad max behind him and starting something different with a script and uh, a studio and sort of dictating a lot of the things that yeah and should and, take place and he did not write the script for this film it's right. one of the few film or i think it's the only film that he did not write or co-write in his filmography it's based on a um, book. Yeah, it's based on a book. Uh, which share. is a lot more ambiguous about the Jack Nicholson character being the devil. Okay. Like he, he may or may not be. And I kind of like that idea more mm. than outright um, portraying him as the literal devil yeah, in this version. That's interesting. I don't. I know nothing about the book. So, um, yeah, I, mean, I, I read about that. And I was like, hmm, that would have been an interesting choice. Right. To make it more ambiguous. Um, I watched this for the first time. Okay, <laughs> I mean, I heard. I it's funny because like I th- I'm pretty sure I saw bits and pieces of it on cable, and it was probably one of those movies where, um, you know, my, I know my parents had watched it. 
dismissed it. I just never found myself intrigued enough to watch it just because I I know like I think maybe Ebert liked it at the time, but it I, got it got decent yeah. reviews. It it did okay. Yeah, but I mean, I don't know why. I, I remember like seeing this was one of those movies I remember more of the trailer because of it playing over and over on pay-per-view. Mm-hmm. And I would see the trailer over and over and it's like, I don't know. I don't nothing nothing about it appeals to me. I I love Hammy Jack Nicholson, but you know, am I, is that really going to carry the movie? And that's probably the only thing I enjoyed was Hammy Jack Nicholson in this. I mean, um, there's vomit sight gags. Yeah, of all things. Cher- cherry, cherries, yeah. vomiting cherries. Yeah, yeah um, With a lot of voodoo thing. Right, and you know the the devil falls, for, you know, prey to like a voodoo doll at the end of all things, and the special effects get really ridiculous in my opinion. It's like an adult version of Hocus Pocus. Um, I really. Um, I don't get a whole lot of out of watching this other than like the only sign of Miller's playfulness as a director comes during a scene where everyone is gliding through a giant reception hall of pink balloons. Yeah. Which I really like. I like that moment a right. lot. Um, and, you know, you can tell like this ensemble is having fun. Mm-hmm. And clearly Jack Nicholson. And, you know, I read, you know, that what made Miller stay on to this project was just how incredibly supportive and helpful Jack Nicholson was to him. Yeah. So, you know, it, it makes sense that he's kind of like the the standout here and that he sort of carries the movie. Oh, uh, definitely. I mean, without Nicholson, this movie doesn't get made. Right. Um, you know, I mean, Cher, Susan Sarandon, Michelle Pfeiffer. They're uh, fine. They're all good, you know. Yeah. They, uh, Cher has a really, I think, a terrific monologue to Jack Nicholson where she's basically telling him off. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the horny little devil moment. Yeah, yeah that's I think, great. I think that's a really funny moment. Yeah, there's. I think that I think the movie has some really interesting. I think the movie has has some good moments, and it's an interesting th- film for its time. Um, as a summer blockbuster, it is kind of a oh. strange. Yeah, it came out around the same time as as the Untouchables. I remember it was a summer where like all these like rated R movies geared towards adults were like ranking in lots of cash at the box office. Um, and yeah, which is V stick was one of those films. It did very well. Um, it's interesting. I, I don't know if the film would work today as written. Um, if it was, I mean, just the sort of the feminist angle of it, I'm not sure it yeah. would play well today. Yeah. Jack Nicholson um, yelling in the church about women. Yeah. Which I think is a funny yeah. line. Yeah. I think it's a funny, th- I think it's a scene. It's over the um, crazy and manic. And- yeah. But I mean, I think, um, I, I do think I, I I do see Miller struggling with this and try to put his stamp on it and not being very successful. With the way it ends, I think. Yeah, um, but it's certainly the film that that sort of sticks out on his filmography that doesn't quite fit in with everything else, except for the theme of the outsider coming in and making uh, a dent in the the order of things, mm-hmm. you know. Um, yeah, there's sort of kind of a surrogate family with the three friends, and then obviously they all become family right. at the very end, literally, with yeah. babies. Yeah, so like in that respect, it's it's it fits in with Miller's filmography, but um, it's clearly he's doing the studio's bidding pretty much yeah and yet at the same time i don't dislike the film either i i like uh it's it's great to actually go back and watch you know at a a, a, a film that 
is from this era where you got three female leads, uh, all kind of at the top of their at the peak of their popularity. Um, sure. These were, I mean, this Moonstruck was, and uh, yeah, Moonstruck. Well, Moonstruck hadn't come out yet, but oh, okay. it would come out later that year. Uh, but uh, you know, Susan Sarandon, Michelle Pfeiffer, and Cher were like three. I mean, and and Jack Nicholson. I mean, that's a hell of a cast right there. That's a, that's um, and Richard know, Jenkins of all people. And Richard <laughs> Jenkins. Um, and it's kind of cool to see those three actresses on the screen together. Uh, and mm-hmm. and and actually having good chemistry, like I actually I believe I, their yeah. friendship. Oh yeah, totally. Very much. I, I like the scenes of them just sort of hanging out. Yeah. Unfortunately, though, there's also that annoying sort of trope with you know, like Susan Sarandon's character starts out as this kind of mousy, nerdy, yeah, uh, you know, thick glasses, works at a library type. And at halfway through the movie, after being seduced by Jack Nicholson, she's just like got her hair puffed out in that eighties way, and she's wearing, you know, going on through town brawless. And you I know, couldn't stand Veronica Cartwright. I just couldn't. I was yeah. like, something evil's going on. Right. <laughs> so much in this movie, it was just like it got so old after a while. Like, we get it. You're religious, and yeah, you're so, and the devil's here, and you can sense it. Got it. <laughs> right. Yeah, so I mean, this film. There's not much, a lot. There's not a whole lot to talk about it except the feminist angle. I mean, by the end of the film, the 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 women have won. You know. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. By basically turning the TV off whenever Jack Nicholson comes on, but you got to wonder the level of commitment to the writer for the writer and everything, where you're dealing with a character like the devil. Um, you know, a deity like that. Uh, what you know, I, I just sort of wonder, like, um, is if it's if if in the book it's more ambiguous if he's the devil. I I do like that a lot more. Yeah, and I don't know what I don't know why they I don't chose know to change that. Meant to think of Nicholson as a uh, Nicholson's character as a devil if he's being so easily defeated. Um, right. Yeah, by, I know. It's like the voodoo doll thing. Yeah, That's how I'm you like, defeat well, the devil. Can do that. Then, well, then we can all defeat the devil. We <laughs> yeah, create, pretty much. Create a voodoo doll out of wax, and, and we can and all everything. turn off the TV. Right. I mean, uh, it's a little, it's a little unclear as to how these women got their powers from him. Um, if in fact that's how they got them, it's a little, it's a little muddled. The you know. Yeah, I think this just the narrative is muddled and. I wasn't clear on why one thing would happen or even how, you know, just the the cherries thing works as a curse. Or I don't right. even know. Yeah. Like, there's certain things in like... It's an inconvenience. I mean, know. I think... Like, well, I think again, to clean up. I think George Miller, as an editor, you know, he knows where to cut things. He knows how to provide clarity yeah. through editing. Like, oh, I know why that why she's throwing up cherry pits. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like, yeah. It, he provides clarity in that regard. It's just... I don't know. I just found it kind of gross and icky and unpleasant. Yeah. <laughs> overall, like, I mean, there's nothing wrong with having an outlier in your filmography that is unpleasant. Yeah. You know. So I mean, as like sort of a dark detour again for his career, it's interesting to watch once in your life. <laughs> right. But it's not something I would actively want to revisit and you know dissect yeah it's got a nice memorable score from john williams that's true who was nominated for an oscar for for his score no that's a it's a very very good score yeah this next film is really hard for me um because 
as most people know, I went through a crazy uh, medical mystery of my own when I almost died. And it, this happened in senior year where doctors had taken out um, half of my the lower left lobe of my lung and said it was diseased and they didn't know what it was. And specialists were coming around. And it, so there are scenes in this movie that hit home in ways that I, I'm still like... I, I, I sort of shake my head in disbelief when I watch this movie at how accurate it is in terms of the science of things and um, and the emotional truth of it. Uh, you know, there is there is a scene where Nick Nolte f- sort of falls down. Let's say down. the name of the film. Did we say the name of the film? It is called Lorenzo's Oil, everybody. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I may have missed it. I, I, said think, it. I don't think I, you so said I don't it, think I did. And that's okay. probably because like I'm so caught up in just how affected I am by this movie. Right. Lorenzo's um, Oil came out in 1992. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think the first time I saw this, this hadn't happened to me. But, you know, watching it now, it's just like, it's it's a little much. It's mm-hmm. just, and I mean that in the, in the best way possible, where it, it captures a specific moment in my life and obviously a specific moment in this, uh, in Lorenzo's life that, is honest and true and so realistic. And like I said, that's that scene where Nick Nolte falls down the stairs in, 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 as an emotional wreck is exactly what my father experienced when doctors told them that they weren't sure if I was going to make it hmm. because of this disease that they had no idea what it was. Yeah. Um, so rewatching it now with a, you know, a more deep appreciation for film and filmmaking, uh, the first act of this movie, the way it's edited, is astonishing to me. It's the the the, the camera sort of careens in and out of things. It, you know, the the editing again is just like it's got its own rhythm to it. Like just the, the way he shoots symptoms and things happening very fast mm-hmm. and unexplained uh, is is again it has a cadence to it that I don't know if most. You know, a lot of people would shoot this as a lifetime movie, and he chooses not to do that at all. Yeah, he almost shoots it as a horror movie. Yeah, and it, that's that's true. And it's very operatic. I yeah. mean, that like, I mean, obviously, there's opera music permeating through he the film a quite a bit for strings. Yeah, you know, from and that's used a lot in Platoon, which is kind of like I wouldn't say distracting in here. I think it's it's unfair because that's actually one of my favorite pieces of music ever written, and whenever I hear it, it evokes tears. So yeah. like hearing it in platoon, which was my first experience with it. And then hearing it in this context, it's like, Oh man, am I put through the ringer? <laughs> right. Um, I think it's, this has got to be Miller's most personal film. I mean, again, yeah, he, was, he was a doctor. He was a doctor. And this is a film about parents who find themselves becoming like doctors there's you know they're not they're not i i haven't seen this film and i I had every intention of watching it today before the podcast but it didn't work out um and i haven't seen it since uh, i mean i saw it last summer i revisited it last summer i think before fury road came out um and i don't remember what were their occupations before or in the film i don't remember now um I'm pretty sure she was, she was a school teacher because okay. she was te- she was uh, yeah she was teaching the students, and um, gosh I can't remember what he was what he was but 
but it, it, this they, is a, they sort of transform themselves. Yeah, but then this is another case of the theme that kind of permeates all of Miller's work, which is the outsiders coming in and shaking up the system or doing something to affect the system because um, they're outsiders. They're not doctors, but they're sort of forced to, um, you know, or they feel forced to take matters, uh, into, to their take own matters into their own hands. Right. So, um, and it's, it's, it is a real, uh, a, 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 a really is an exhilarating uh, emotional journey that the viewer is on for this film. And like you said, yeah, it could have been a lifetime movie of the week thing. And, and I'm sure it was, you know, probably, you know, probably people stayed away from it cause it looked like it. It certainly was marketed that way. Um, but, uh, Miller does something that is really kind of does a lot. It sort of reminds me of, you know, the movie that's out right now, the big short, which is taking a subject and that's very complex. Um, or in this case, an illness that's very complex and distilling it down. So the viewer understands what's going on and what's at stake without actually dumbing it down though um making it coherent to the audience yet still complex so that we're not it's not being just overly simplified um and that's really that's a tricky thing to do but well i yeah i i i completely see where you're coming from with that and it's it's like maybe a character doesn't understand why something is happening so you know, Nick Nolte at one point takes, you know, gets a chalkboard and sort of illustrates something, mm-hmm. not necessarily to the audience, right? But to the person in the room who's having trouble understanding it, right? And that helps us. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's just good screenwriting. Yeah. Um, that's just that's you know, um, uh, just really making sure that you're Miller's making sure that he's not just making a movie for himself. Uh, you know, that only he's going to understand. Um, I mean, it's a, it's such a movie. It's such a beautiful, true story. I mean, like the end, uh, always knocks me out. Oh man! Um, <laughs> you know, and it's, uh, you know, when they show the, the kids who are all affected by this the world over. And that's something that, you know, um, you know, that kind of ending, I don't recall any movie before this doing that kind of an ending. Hmm. Um, you know, like you can almost equate it to Schindler's List when they bring in the real Jews, yeah. um, or a lot of documentaries, or you know, a lot of biopics when they show the real person at the end of the film. Um, That's kind of become a cliche. At it has become, yeah. But like, where did it start? I may have started here. I'm not sure, but mm-hmm. I wouldn't. But 1992, uh, maybe. <laughs> um, but, this is also a very this. If you're a parent too, there's there's certainly a section in this mm. movie where it seems so so hopeless and so dire yeah. for Lorenzo that it is actually hard to watch. It is yeah. you're watching him suffer. Mm-hmm. And obviously, I mean, most people would probably go in kind of knowing the outcome, um, you know, based on if you just do internet research, I, I guess. But I mean, it's still just harrowing. At, at certain points of this movie, but it's also inspiring. It's yeah. inspiring to see parents do what they do and go to the lengths that they go through to where they're practically, 
I'm not literally sitting at the Supreme Court or something, but they're they're sitting with medical doctors saying this is what you need to do, mm-hmm. um, and you know, doing it with confidence and 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 getting being proactive mm-hmm. in ways that I don't think a lot of people would have the uh, the courage to do. Um, but you know, the, the determination of these of these people, you know, and it's not just one of those things where you're elevating it based on the true story. Yeah. Uh, it's it's just actually watching like I think this I I mean it's between this and Dead Man Walking but this is Susan Sarandon in this movie is phenomenal. She, I think this is my favorite yeah. Sarandon performance. I, I haven't seen so Dead too. Man Walking in a long time. I think Both, I've only seen it once. It's but neck and neck. I, it's what yeah. it's just like her most compassionate, empathic characters mm-hmm. too. Um, I mean, people sort of like kind of harp harp on a little bit of Nick Nolte's accent, but it's accurate. Mm-hmm. From what I from what I've heard, yeah. Um, I mean, and even just doing a recent um, check in with with Lorenzo, it's it's sad to find out that he did recently pass mm-hmm. along with his father, just like a couple years after mm-hmm. he after Lorenzo passed. Mm-hmm. But he led a long, uh, relatively healthy life, even if he wasn't. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, it's it's something that a- any movie that involves the mystery of illness, I'm going to speak to me directly and home and it's probably a huge reason why I, I i sort of equate this movie also and attribute it to why i became so fat with neuroscience and research like i love just researching for hours on end mm-hmm. um and they, they sort of not necessarily romanticize it here but they they portray it in such a real manner it's sort of like a little bit of um not necessarily this zodiac but just um, they 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 get the minutia down of yeah. just like I'm in the library looking up you know microfiche or mm-hmm. you know I'm sitting with all these books trying to find this one thing and when you find that one thing and the lightning bulb goes off over your head it's like the greatest feeling in the world <laughs> and that happens to Nolte here and it's so great and like he even has a moment where he dreams something um and that moment's great like this this whole movie is a collection of really life affirming moments that. Um, it speaks to me. It's and it could speak to anybody who uh, you don't necessarily have to have gone experience or have had a chest, you know, had a funky disease of any kind. It's just one of those stories, and Miller really tackled it head on. Yeah, I I I, I agree with all of that, um, and it sort of reminds me that you know this past year, uh, a lot of the movies that were you know sort of Oscar bait are movies that are based on true stories like. The Danish Girl, Concussion, Trumbo, and they're just kind of like sort of gutless, middle of the road, yeah. you know, pan, you know, movies that just pander to the Oscar voters, and they're movies that sort of just like coast on the idea of being based on a true story without challenging the audience in any way or doing something interesting with form right yeah i mean uh, that's why the big short stands out that's why spotlight stands out because these are movies that aren't trying to you, you never catch them trying too hard to win awards you know yeah and i think lorenzo's oil is that kind of film too like you said it it plays with the fo- it plays with form it, yeah, it is stylistically interesting um and and uniquely fast paced for its subject and uh does not sort of uh, it it's very much about the importance of research and not just about 
isn't it great what these people did? Yeah. It's it's about because they show there are moments where they show the parents struggling and right. being jerks. Right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Other. Yeah. There are times when you don't like these parents. Yeah. And that's good. That's a good thing. It makes um, them more human. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, you know, it, it's very hard to find movies that do that kind of thing these days. Um, but I think uh, you know this is another one of those sort of you know when you look at Miller's filmography this is you know the other kind of oddball in the bunch and in in terms of just genre and and the kind of you know story that it is and there aren't any special effects or weird characters in it or anything it's just a very human story and um you know he's gone on record he said you know recently that you know he's he's not interested yet in directing mad max 5 um he wants to do something a little smaller and character driven. And I, I that think would that's make great. me very happy. Yeah, I, I think that's great. I mean I, I would love to see on my lap. I would love to see another um <laughs> Miller's uh, I'd love to see another uh Lorenzo's oil on his on his resume before he retires. Oh man, that would be wonderful. You know? So we'll see. That yeah, if even if it's another true story, yeah. like I know I know like Patrick was kind of frowning upon the idea of Todd Haynes doing a a Peggy Lee biopic, but I was like, it's Todd Haynes. He'll do something interesting. Right. You know, I mean, look what he did with uh, Bob Dylan. So, yeah. you know, and, if, and the Carpenters, oh, you want right. to go back to Carpenters, of course. Yeah. So, I mean, if he does do another sort of, you know, fact based story about something remarkable like this, I'm on board a hundred percent. Sure. And, uh, you know, p- part of me watching this too, would like to think that once they figured out what I had, my, you know, whether the internet came into fruition or not, I'm positive that my dad went and did research on <laughs> this crazy fucked up uh, fungal infection that I had. Yeah. So it's 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 very easy for me to um, sort of project in you know into the experience of you know obviously I didn't have the I had some severe pain, but um, it, it's so hard not to feel for that kid when, when he's going through what he's going through, and it, it sort of it creates. Uh, a horror movie out of metabolism, which is something you can't really say about a lot of movies where it's just like, oh my God, look at how fragile the human body can be. Yeah. Like you think you're just like, oh, I'm just, I'm just metabolizing this pizza I had and everything will be fine. But look at how, just. Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> anyway, let's move on because we got to, we got to lighten things up just a little bit here. Um, because the two babe films, we're going to sort of, you know, talk about them together here. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Kind and steady. Be sure to see through. It may not seem like very much right now, but it'll do. do. When you find yourself in the middle of a storm and you're tired and cold and wet, and you're looking for a place that's cold. Um, he did. He did not direct the first Babe film, um, which is Chris, silly that I didn't realize until recently. <laughs> it was directed by a guy named Chris Noonan, uh, who um, doesn't have much else on his filmography aside from some TV stuff and a film called Miss Potter. Um, but uh, it is still very much in the George Miller vein uh, because of. Um, I mean, he he read the book. In uh, in the, around the mid '80s, and just was delighted by it, and decided it should be a film. 
Um, he, I think he wanted to, the story goes, he wanted to direct the first Babe film, but he was too busy with Lorenzo's oil. And, uh, which is weird when you think of the timeline, Lorenzo's oil came out in 92, Babe came out in 95. So, you know, <laughs> what kind of an, it was, must've been an arduous pre-production and production, which I guess makes sense considering that this is the first of the talking animal films that would use. Uh, computer generated effects to achieve a realistic yeah a realistic yeah. M- mouth movements and it certainly worked i mean you watched the, the first time you saw the trailer for babe you went oh my god okay now we're we've crossed another line with this whole cgi thing you know um and uh so you know the the both these you know the babe film i think the first babe film um you know, Miller co-wrote it, he produced it. And, you know, again, it's about a character, in this case, a pig, um, who kind of comes in to a household or a farm or barnyard and just kind of another outsider coming in and shaking things up. And, and, you know, he thinks he's a sheep pig, uh, or or, or a sheep dog and he becomes, you know, a sheep pig, uh, herding sheep. Uh, but he's but it's an it's a tale of an unprejudiced heart, as the narrator Aww. says, um, and uh, it has been noted on the DVD that uh, you know Miller made a film about an unprejudiced heart, but he has a prejudice against cats. Um, Wait a minute here, <laughs> he's not a cat person; oh, he's a dog man. person. Um, Podcast over. <laughs> Sorry, Miller, I can't um, give you any more time. Uh, but uh, so that's why the cat in the film is kind of n- not necessarily a villain, but you know, yeah. not not the nicest character. But the, the cats in the, the story are cute as hell. Oh, but then we'll get when we get to Babe Pig in the City. Then we'll talk about dogs um, and what happens to dogs in that film. Uh-huh. Uh, so <laughs> I think he balances it out pretty well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe even off balance, but. Um, uh, but the babe, the first Babe movie, I just think is a really, first of all, beautiful technical achievement, and that yeah. you just st- kind of stop forgetting about the special effects that you're seeing, mm-hmm. uh, because the characters I think are so richly drawn. Uh, I think the dogs, um, uh, oh man, I'm for, uh, Fly was the woman or the female dog, and then um, oh, I can't remember the 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 male dog. Uh, who's voiced by, um, why am I blanking out his name? The Matrix, Lord of the Rings. Lawrence Fishburne? No. Oh, wait. Uh, Bald guy, elf. Um, oh, uh, Hugo. Hugo Weaving. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 43. It's starting to happen. Um, mm. Voiced by Hugo Weaving. Um you know, Miller treats these characters like human characters. They're, these aren't just cute little animals. These are characters that have personalities and emotions and backstories, uh, you know, especially the dogs. Um, the Hugo Weaving character is that is just kind of this, you know, uh, he has a viciousness in him that needs to be tamed. Um, he's got kind of an anger in him, and a, and a, and and he's sort of the leader of of the whole order of things in, right. in the barnyard. Um, and and babe doesn't shows everybody the way. And yeah, but the, yeah, and he doesn't take kindly to Babe. He's just like, yeah, well, okay, he can hang around until he finds his feet. Yeah. Um, and then he's he's got to go. And everybody, you know, and then of course the whole permeating danger 
And the whole story is that Babe will eventually be dinner one day. Um, and I think it's, you know, this is Miller's first foray into, you know, making a movie that, you know, or is sort of aimed at kids. But he's not a, he's not shy about, he doesn't shy he's away from... The, the the message and the sort of the darkness that comes with yeah. owning an animal or looking for, after an animal or what happens to animals. Like, this is the reality. This is exactly, you you know, you eat bacon and ham every day. Well, this is where it comes from. And he's not afraid to, to show that. Um, and I don't think he gets too heavy-handed with it. I mean, obviously, this, this movie is a vegetarian's, you know, best friend. Uh, and... But yeah, there are people who became vegetarians after seeing Babe. Sure, right, and you know, Nothing but 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 it's really just about it's more about the characters than it is about the message. I think it's yeah, just the no, message yeah, is the message is just sort of um, incidental. I think did E. G. Daly do the voice of Babe? E. G. Daly did the voice of Babe for Babe Pig in the City. Oh, okay. um, the first film it was voiced by a little girl. Uh, who just had the right voice for it. Hmm. Um, but, of course, she grew up and couldn't do the second one. Oh, that makes um, sense. But, uh, but yeah, E.G. Daly did it for the second one. And, and they're pretty much, they're very much alike. Oh, yeah, um, I couldn't tell the difference, to be honest. Yeah, I yeah. mean, so like, so, like, the first Babe has this really magical sort of storybook quality yeah. to it. It's very whimsical. It's, it's vi- very fairy tale, yeah, storybook. Yeah, I mean, yeah. even the house, you know, it's sort of perched in this, in the middle of this enclave with all these hills and valleys and a place you'd never put a house. Um, you but gotta it, love James Cromwell too. James He's, Cromwell, who's, I mean, his little goofy dance is a little much, but oh, I love the dance! <laughs> I love that it. it's so freaking cute. I know. Um, and it's just again, it's it's. I remember it's, even in the theater, I was like, really, this is so. <laughs> but it's like it's so just. Uh, it's another one of those little flourishes that yeah, that know. that sort of you know makes uh makes the work all the more emotional and the attachment between mm-hmm. human and animal yeah that much that you can tell there's a real connection there um so there's your connection with babe and the road warrior is the human and animal you know nice. connection and relationship there um, yeah, nice connective tissue brought brought forth there I'm, right I'm I'm, and, I was even thinking of like Oh yeah, you know what the outsider is in Lorenzo's oil? It's a crazy disease. Well, so there's always okay. an outsider sort of in not necessarily interfering in a bad way, but right. just coming just, to stir things up and yeah. uh, you know, creating instability. Right. For better uh, or worse. until there's a new kind of stability yeah. at the end. Right. Yes, exactly. Um and so yeah, so Babe, you know, kind of warmed everybody's heart, got not a surprise nomination for Best Picture, didn't win, but it, it the 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 number of Oscars it got nominated for was a huge surprise to everybody. Cause it came out in the summertime and got great reviews, but you know, nobody expected it to go on to Oscar, you know, yeah. <laughs> get be nominated for was Best kind Picture. of a weak year, if I recall. It, yeah, I guess it was, but, but uh still, I mean, but it, still it worth it it deserved it. Yeah. I, I you know, like I remember a friend of mine saying, "Like, yeah, Braveheart's a great movie. It's exciting. I loved it. It's 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 really just an extraordinary. What Mel Gibson achieved was really extraordinary. But when a movie about it with a talking pig makes you cry at the end, that's something special, you know. <laughs> so it's like so that's why I'm rooting for Babe to win Best Picture. And like, so yeah, kind of I can see that. 1998 comes around. 
And uh, you want to talk about crazy choices for number one movies from Siskel and Ebert at the end of that year. Right. You had Ebert with Dark City, mm-hmm. which I don't know if I can necessarily get behind, but I do like the movie. However, <laughs> Siskel put Babe Pig in the City as his number one movie of that year. And I remember in the article that he wrote, the first thing he said was, this is not a stunt. This is like... I really firmly believe this was the best experience I've had at the movies all year. It's the first film that he's, he's I remember clearly reading that like he is, he wanted this. This is one of the very few films in his life that when it was over, he immediately wanted to watch it again. Yeah. It was, the, um, it was also the first year. I think, I think it was also, it was the first year Nick had his solo show. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, I started contributing, and this was the first time I read my top ten list on his solo show. I don't remember where Babe placed, but I think, you know, I'd have to check Letterbox. But honestly, I think this would be my number one of that year. I it's love not- the sequel so much yeah. that I've embarrassed myself in front of people <laughs> watching this movie. I I love it too. I I think it's I think it's amazing. Uh, Truman Show is still my number one of ninety eight, but. This yeah, is that's, another they're Australian. Close. They're close. Yeah, yes. the Australians really <laughs> kicked ass that Two year. Two of my favorite filmmakers. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> Babe is big in the city. Probably my number two or three. I'd have to check my letterbox also, but definitely up there. Um, uh, yeah. So again, with the sequels and sort of instead and, and not just. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I saw the trailer for Babe Pig in the City, I thought, no. Yeah. This this looks awful. I don't know why we have to do this. Why ruin such a perfect thing? I didn't know at the time Miller directed it. I didn't really make that connection. Right. Neither um, did I. And I, and even, and, the, even initially I was like, Oh no, um, James Cromwell is going to be in the, in the bed and he's not even going to be in the movie at all. And yeah. then I was worried yeah. going in at first. Yeah. And then the reviews came out and it's four stars across the board. And yeah. I was like, "Wait, what? What? Four yeah. star? Four star? I saw that trailer. How is this a four star film? What?" Uh, <laughs> and I saw and, it in a near empty theater with my best friend at the time. Yes, yeah, yeah. And I missed the first run of the film because it came and went. Like it yeah. bombed. It was like one of the Huge biggest bombs bomb. of that year. And we'll talk about why in a moment. But um, when all the top ten lists came out and and Babe was on a lot of them, uh, back when we still had dollar theaters. Uh, when Babe Pig in the City oh, played yeah. at the Dollar Theater, I said, "Okay, well, buck fifty. Let's go see if this is really a four star film. I don't, I don't, I still don't agree with it being made. I'll go see what the deal is." And I was blown away, absolutely blown away. Yep. And um, went back and saw it repeatedly. Dragged friends to see it. Like, no, 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 no. You gotta come see it. No, no, no. I know I'm with you, but you gotta come see it. Trust me. Buck fifty, you got nothing to lose. You don't like it, just get up and leave. But I think you're gonna love it. And so it's I must the Terry have seen Gilliam it. of talking pig movies, right? I mean, uh, that's kind of what I had to say. Like this is a, this isn't this isn't a Babe movie. It's a Terry Gilliam movie. Yeah. Come see it. Um, and you know, seriously, I must have seen it like seven or eight times at the Dollar Theater. It, it stayed there for a while. One of the things that I saw it almost every time at every screening of this film is a kid getting taken out of the theater by their parents because they were way too upset. Yep. And I totally get that. Um, it's, there it's is... just dismisses too dark. 
by it a lot is, of people. It is very dark. And it is not for kids. It should not have been rated G. It should have been PG. Um, it, I think it originally it was PG. Uh, then Mil- Miller took a shot out of the film uh, that, uh, again, was a lot like you know some of the cruelty that we see in the film. Um, and then it got a rated G. But I still think, you know, this is not a G-rated film. Um, but that that's that's doesn't matter. Um, but it is a film that, again, really uh, shows his commitment to the story regardless of how he feels, you know, regardless of an audience's reaction to it. Um, there are things in this, hap- in this movie that happen to animals that are cruel and hard to watch. Um, but I, I myself can separate from that. Um, I have a, I can compartmentalize a little bit when I'm watching a film and if I see animals being treated cruelly, I can, I mean, it depends on the context of course, but like in the case of this film, I know that, you know, like the first time I saw it, I wasn't getting upset about what I was seeing because I knew I knew it was all going to work out in the end. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of how I feel about it. It's shocking to see in the moment. Uh, it is, yeah, it is. I mean, again, out of all things, another bravura sort of chase scene involving the bull terrier. I mean, right. like that, that, that whole sequence is phenomenal. The chase alone. Like, again, he, he, does, he does a great chase scene in a kid's movie. Well, right. Again, not a kid's movie here, but still. And then, you know, Babe sees his, his life flash before his eyes, almost edited like a Nicholas Rogue movie. Um, yeah, the cutting just, is amazing. Oh, God, yeah. And that, that act of selflessness, I lose my shit. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I lose my shit in that moment. And I've, I've shown this to like three or four people, and they're like, are you crying right now? <laughs> like, yeah, this is so amazing. Right, right. And you, you, I mean, not just, I mean, I don't look at it as an act of, I mean, well, this, the, the last the part, the act of that, yeah, when yeah. he gets the boat, that's an act of yes, selflessness. Yes, but yes. the moment when he turns around and asks his attacker, why? It's like, yeah. why are you attacking me? Exactly. Is yeah, such yeah, yeah, a, yeah. like, um, just, you wonder, like, where where did that come from when he's sitting at the typewriter writing this? Um, you know, I'm, I guess the, the point is to make the pig stop so that he gets hit and thrown into the river. Uh-huh. And then that causes the dog to jump in the river and almost drown uh, while being strangled, you know, being hung by the neck by this leash that he's attached to and he can't get an escape from. Um, but it's all about and then eventually he the the pig gets the answer to that question so it comes back it's a it's a moment that comes back later the, like babe pig in the city is filled with all these moments where you're not sure why did that have to happen and it's paid off much later in a way that is so um intricate much like the human body that you know that miller knows very well and has studied this is a film that has that kind of um, innovation with storytelling where it's filled with all these little details that matter eventually. That whole bizarre scene with the um, the boss's wife looking for the pig in the street city that's kind of populated with these Tim Burton kind of characters. <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, eventually having this, uh, this, I don't know what it's called, but this like, 
glue dropped on her head, uh, a bucket of glue. It, 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 this whole sort of calamitous a scene where that eventually ends with having this bucket of glue dropped all over her and then, you know, ruining her dress. And when you're like, what, why, why is that scene here? And then eventually comes back later. Well, because when she bends over her, her dress is going to later in the movie, when she bends over, her dress is going to rip because of the glue and it's going to force her to put on something else. Uh, and it ends up being um, the the clown outfit worn by yep. Mickey Rooney, who dies halfway through the film. And then when uh, the orangutan sees her, he doesn't see her. He sees his former owner that he has this emotional attachment to. And he thinks that's his new owner. And finally, he has somebody to connect to. And then he's going to eventually end up being her helper at the end of the film. It's like that kind of thinking, like that that's kind of very Zemeckis. It's very Zemeckis, but it's on, a, on another level. It's yeah, on a yeah. more like it's on a sort of a like emotional or spiritual level in that, <laughs> in that like he's like really taking these characters and their emotions seriously. I love the orangutan character oh, so much in this film. It's my favorite character in the film. Oh, the moment with the goldfish and, too. Right. Yeah. Oh. The goldfish. I mean, the orangutan has one of my all time favorite lines. Actually, when I watched it this afternoon, I wrote it down. Um, when he, when babe comes in and, uh talks to the chimpanzees about you know i want my bag back and then the orangutan comes in and he's very darkly lit he's this kind of like brooding figure who's obviously like the head of the household and uh the chimps have no idea what babe is they've never seen a pig before and and <laughs> and um and and uh the orangutan named Thelonius says you drooling imbeciles this is an omnivorous mammal of the order Inglata, an inconsequential species with no other purpose than to be eaten by humans. This lowly, handless, deeply unattractive mud lover is a pig. What a great wow. line for to just to write that. Yeah. I mean, like, you could have just said, idiots, he's a pig. You've never seen a <laughs> pig before? Like, any other weak-minded screenwriter would write, would have written it like that. But Miller has this thing with dialogue that nobody never gives him any credit for. Um, I mean, the climax is goofy, but I don't think in an obnoxious way. I know, it's, like, it's weird. It it's is a very weird. weird. <laughs> the whole, the whole bungee. Like yeah, that's like, that is a Gilliam scene. Like, the whole bungee yeah. chasing. The bungee thing. They're all, like, swinging and trying to get the pig and everything is bizarre but in this sort of great like ringling brothers freak show sort of way um that is you know and then the guy pulls the cord on on the on that on that clown suit that causes it to inflate um and it just gets weirder and weirder but yet, yeah. It, but yet, it it all it all pays it works, off. It works later. like magic. Yeah, and I think the. Uh, I mean, I knew well, the first time I saw this movie that I was going to kind of be in love with it was the 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 just the overall set design, the amalgam of cities. Yeah, the Statue of Liberty with the Eiffel Tower with the Golden Gate Bridge, and I just went. Oh my God, that's so imaginative. Yeah, I want to live there. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. I mean, it's really just like it looks like Oz. Yeah, yeah. yeah and exactly. and you notice at the beginning of the film when 
you know, the um, at the farm when the bankers come mm-hmm. and they're sort of backlit with this golden sunset behind them. But they're but there's a sort of danger. There's a sense of danger um, when the music, you, the music cue sounds very Wizard of Oz like these sort of swirling violins oh, that okay. happen. Um, and this movie is kind of like Wizard of Oz. It's about, you know, going into this crazy world, you know, there, these people are used to farm life and they're going into the city where they they get kind of lost. They meet all these kind of crazy characters and they, all these characters kind of serve the purpose and they all end up back home How on the farm. How was Wizard of Oz received when it first came out? I mean, was it dismissed as like, this is too dark. I don't think people are going to like it. I mean, it's one of those things where. Like I, you know, I mentioned this recently too. After seeing Groundhog Day again, was I walked out of it with my dad, and we both went, "Well, that's going to be a classic. That's going to be like a sort of elevated to a Frank Capra level classic someday." Mm. And in a way, it's it has like the, it's become one of those like, "Oh, we're going to play at twenty four hours on one channel, like Christmas Story kind right, of movie." Right. And um, I don't, I wish that would happen with Babe Big in the City. I wish <laughs> it would be elevated to the classic status. Well, it's um, kind of a cult classic. It's definitely I mean, a cult it's, classic. It's definitely. Like people have I mean, seen it and love it for all the right reasons. Then, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's some people who. I mean, I, I and I can understand it being sort of a hard film to watch for some people because people. I mean, especially kids. Kids do not like to see animals dangling from things oh. by the neck or i don't or, like to see it but or the scene with fleelick uh the dog the dog who's you know whose hind legs are on wheels um yeah. you know hanging on to the car that's you know speeding along a wet uh slippery pavement and you can and you can just feel the danger all these cars next to him and you and he he gets he doesn't die but he gets he gets thrown um and uh has this kind of near death spiritual experience that um that again is one of those sort of throwaway moments that you wonder like how did miller think of that to put throw that in there when when the dog is just this kind of like sees the afterlife for a moment and then comes to yeah, uh, a really hard that that was one of those scenes where like okay, I'm pretty sure a kid is going to walk out of the room, you know, I walk out of the theater crying at about the, at yeah, about and now, and it would always happen later on. Chimpanzees dealing having to deal with fire, right? You know, and that's that's a whole catastrophe. There's there's a lot of scary stuff in this movie, and yeah, and to Miller's credit, he's not doesn't shy away from doesn't shy stuff. away from it. He's not afraid to put dark things in in movies that he knows that a lot of kids are going to want to see. And uh, but he did want to make something that he knew his kids would love, right? And yeah, he that then then so yeah, he, so now he's in this period where he is making fi- you know films for for young people. But uh, he has said in interviews, you know, I've I've seen a lot of films, you know, because I have kids, I see a lot of oh silly cat, my cat's knocking things over now. Um, you know, uh, so he he's seen a lot of movies that are just kind of pandering and you know lifeless and soulless and aimed at kids, and he wants to do something a little different. Um, and he does that. Uh, yeah, I forgot what movie he saw. Um, that kind of sold him on utilizing CGI full throttle. Yeah, with um with Happy Feet, and again. On the surface, definitely a kids' movie, but it's also a parable about 
xenophobia tolerance mm-hmm. um ecological responsibility yeah um it's almost like yeah yeah i saw Werner herzog movies and um i kind of want to turn it into a musical with <laughs> i mean i i do like it a lot i do i just think maybe one one too many musical moments right and, you know not a few song choices where i'm like yeah that's not a strong choice, but then again, you're trying to appeal to kids. So who right. am I to judge? Like, oh, that song's lame. Well, he did consult with with a lot of. He consulted with Elijah Wood on a lot of the music. Huh. You know, Elijah Wood is. You know, a lot of people know. I mean, first of all, he's the he's the voice of Mumble, the penguin in the film, and um, he's known for being kind of a musicologist. You know, as a producer, I guess, or I think he's a producer, um, or he's 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 definitely a guy who's who knows. A lot about music and the music industry and yeah, you know, and what's worked, out there. I think he's worked on a record label or something. Along right? Those lines. Yeah, he's yeah. done something like that. Um, so you know, Elijah Wood was cluing him in on you know, like like okay, Miller, okay, George, this song is cool. This song's not, so don't use that. Um, but this song you should definitely use. Um, I mean, you know, it's it. I mean, Miller eventually making a full-on animated film, a computer animated film, isn't that surprising? I mean, Babe, Big in the City at the time uh, was a movie that had more special effects shots than any other film made um, at that time. I'm sure by now it's been surpassed, but that's one of the things why. That's one of the reasons why it it took so long to make, and um, you know, it's kind of rushed into release. Uh, you know, um, and you got to wonder also, and I know we're going to get into happy feet in a second, but I just want to m- make mention of how hard it must be to make a film like Babe and Babe Pig in the City when you're there's a whole at least a half hour of this of Babe Pig in the City. There are no human characters. Yeah. And so, like, it's just every day you're on the set hoping and praying you get a good shot of this animal. You know, you, there's, like, one shot in this movie where an animal comes up the stairs and another animal comes out of the room and follows him, and then the, the camera follows them and they run into another character. It's like, wait, how do you orchestrate this sort of thing? They must have the best animal trainers in the history oh of the world. God, it's just, like, that's what I. That's one of the things I wa- think about when I watch it is just, like, the commitments like how did you get those cats tails to swing back and forth <laughs> the opera cats oh, see he that. likes the opera cats he gives, gives the opera cats uh, the good stuff in this film yeah that makes um, me so happy yeah so but uh so that's another thing it's like that's the that's where the patience parts comes in when making a film and that's you know he's got that the patience for it because he's he's dis- he's got that doctor's discipline you know uh, to to deal with that sort of thing, but he's chock full of surprises, including with Happy Feet here. Right. Um. I again, I watched this for the first time recently. I don't know how I managed to not know what happens in the third act, mm. but it becomes very Twilight Zony, and I'm kind of like, whoa, yeah. What the? I I love that. Right. And I it, think that's so cool that he chose to go there yeah so so mumble the penguin who can't sing but he can dance but he's not the dancing is frowned upon because it's just not penguin uh (laughs) as his dad says um and again he's even though he's born into this world he's an outsider who's eventually going to change the system and change the status quo later on in the film so again this is where happy feet ties in with mad max um in in and how they're connected so 
again, I didn't, like I said, this wasn't a brain teaser of how these films are connected. This is it. This is all, <laughs> this is what I got to connect them. Um, you're a scholar of Miller. Well, yeah, but this is, you I should mean, be teaching a class at Columbia. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I teach enough. Um, so <clears throat> yeah, I love the third act of happy feet. I think that's what makes it go from a good movie to a great yes. movie. Um, yeah, everything leading up to it. It's cute. It's fun. It's, I, I like it. It's, uh, I, I think the musical numbers, I think you're right. There's probably like one too many. I love one of my favorite sequences in any Miller film is the scene where all the penguins are jumping into the water for the first time to the tune of the, the beach boy song. What's the name of that song? Uh, Do you know? Like, it's not in my room, is it? No, it's not. No, that song is in there, but yeah. that's not the song. It's the uh, um. I don't know what the words I know, are, I know, I know but I don't, I don't know the name of the song. And I'm sorry, all the Beach Boy Brian Wilson fans out there want to kill me right now. But no, it's not on Pet Sounds. I know that. Yeah. But it's such a great sequence. It's just this like beautiful water ballet. It's kind of like. It's almost like the air and water show in a way, the way they, every, all the penguins are swimming in formation to this great Beach Boys song. Um, I love that scene so much. It's beautiful. Uh, but And I love, uh, yeah, I like I like the third act of this movie when the humans come in. Uh, they're thought of as aliens yep. um, by these creatures. And of course, they're, they'd be considered aliens. And I totally aliens. were expecting you all. I know who the aliens are going to be, but I expected them to be animated. Right. That's another very interesting choice that Miller chooses not to animate the human characters. Yeah. Um, making them real, which makes the story more real. And again, you got character, you got these, It's it definitely connects with Babe um, in that, you know, in Babe Pig in the City at the very, at the beginning after James Cromwell gets injured and, the narrator says at no point other point in his life that babe wished that his vo- words could be heard uh, if only to say sorry boss yeah and he can't you know he can't be heard and just like and again that repeats in happy feet when uh, mumble is trying to communicate, communicate. To the people outside the glass yeah and they can't hear all they hear is rah, rah, rah. Yeah, yeah and like you know miller's very um he he very much is in tune with the emotions of animals they're like these are these you know animals have deep emotions just like humans do but we kind of (laughs) forget don't treat them like they do it's very hard with a silly cat to do that yeah Um, very emotionally aware very emotionally intelligent in that regard and that's something that i think george miller shares in common with animals right um so that that i mean that's a theme that permeates through his work and that that definitely happens here um, and I, and this is Robin Williams. I like Robin. Oh yeah. I like Robin Williams. Yeah. I, uh, I vo- like it. I like voice. his voice work. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, you could make the argument that it's like, well, he's supposed to be this Latino penguin. Why didn't they get a Latino actor? I, to do it? But I don't want to go there because I'm, you know, you could do that with uh, almost everything. Um, so, and but that's I, what we're doing. Now. Right. Exactly. <laughs> we have to pick apart. We have to be offended by everything now. Um, but yeah, no, I like Robin Williams uh, as both characters. He's he's yeah. two characters in this film. He is the he is a character, uh, the Ramon, which is uh, Mumbles be- eventually becomes Mumbles' best friend, and he's also the character of um, this. Uh, oh, what's his? Oh, I, f- yeah. I forgot the name of the characters now. Um, but the uh, um, oh no, the 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 Ramon is the character of. 
this sort of wor- guy who's wor- this penguin that's worshipped all by the land for be- you know having the most wisdom and has has come in contact with the aliens and uh, has seen them and and he's sort of the all knowing, all seeing, um, you know, uh, em- not emperor. No, that's penguin. Lovelace. Oh, Lovelace. Yeah. Okay. I'm talking. Okay. So the name is Lovelace. Yeah. I'm getting everything mixed up right now. Um, yeah. So Lovelace is this character that is really is sort of a false prophet. Um, Mm -hmm. and that's, that I think is again, sort of goes back to Thunderdome and that, you know, he's in a way he's kind of, like uh not the cap unintentionally or he's sort of just the character that you know sort of maybe not thunderdome stumbled stumbled into heroism yeah stumbled into heroism (laughs) really and is and is going with it in this case he's going with it he's got the plastic he's got yeah he's got the six-pack ring the the six-pack beer plastic around his neck and you're gonna do that you're gonna talk about that and as well you should yeah talk about pollution Go mm-hmm. there. That's fine. Yeah, I'm, it's I'm it's definitely it. it's definitely Miller's most overtly political message mm-hmm. film. I mean, he, he's he's not being subtle with any of this. Uh, humans are definitely the 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 problem in the film, but they're also the problem solvers by the end. So he's not yeah, totally vilifying yeah. the humans either. Um, as long as they become aware of the problem, yeah, they and, can fix and, it. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a leap to think like. That I mean, it is kind of a a, a a naive leap to make that the the humans, humans let let him go back into the wilderness, or I mean, you know, back into no. The, what I was going to say was that that the humans would see all these penguins dancing and realize, oh, we got to solve their fish problem. That's what they're trying to tell us. That's the leap. That, yeah. That's a leap, but I go with it because I'm uh, because it's you know it's an animated film with a message, an environmental message, and. You know, by that point in the film, you know you got to kind of <laughs> swallow a lot, as it is. Uh, you're either on board or you're not at that point, anyway. Um, so and I, I was, I was, I definitely was. I don't get as emotionally, you know, invested the way I do with Babe Pig in the City. But at the same time, the surprise element of the third act is really what elevates it for me. It really like, yeah, steps it up. It makes you sort of reframe the movie that mm. you saw earlier and uh it adds a whole other layer to it that like wow that's again a really inventive original uh feat of miller to insert that yeah and into I, this world and i think like yeah and i and i and i also i mean it's sort of like stylistically when you watch it's hard to sort of find Miller's visual style in a film like this but I do remember when I saw it gliding through the water you know yeah 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 it's graceful yeah it was very graceful and but and usually I I find more more of his voice in the dialogue especially when new characters come in and sort of explain their nature to mumble or whoever's listening that's a very miller type thing to do with a with a with an animal character to you know talk about you know especially like the pit bull in 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 babe pig in the city when he says no oh, murderous shadow lies hard across my soul <laughs> we were once warriors now it's just the urge and you know there's dialogue like that in happy feet too with the elephant seals and and all that so yeah transition to the sequel which i have yet to see but i do plan on it i'm curious to know if because i've actually heard from a lot of people that it's inferior and here's a guy who does 
very well with sequels normally. Yeah, and I I think it's inferior, but not by much. Um, I mean, I definitely get the sense with Happy Feet too that Miller's heart really wasn't in the story that as much. It's a very slight story. It's a different kind of story than Happy Feet One. Um, this is this one is mainly about how the penguins are trapped in the in their home like there's an avalanche that causes them to be trapped which causes them which causes the fish supply to be out of reach for them and so hmm. they have to figure out a way to uh create sort of restructure or create another avalanche that would create like a a passageway to the outside world so they can get the fish that's kind of the story um and so it's a little slight it's a much shorter film um and yeah it's a little thin in the story department but there are really wonderful moments in the film that i think uh make it worth really worth watching first of all the two new characters in it in the film are these little or these krill uh under you know these undersea oh yeah little little undersea creatures underwater creatures that you know that sharks eat um and they're all you know there's millions of them in a swarm and you know these two krills sort of get out they're voiced by matt damon and brad pitt and they're sort of (laughs) there are they are without question they are gay krill (laughs) um they speak like they're in a relationship together um and you know one of the one of them they have like little existential conversations about the meaning of existence and you know what their purposes in the world and you know um and uh, and they really do steal the film um and they break up at one point and get back together later in the film i mean it's, i think it's very funny um there is another new character called named sven uh who's not a penguin but a puffin which is you know swedish bird and um i like puffins and uh and it is definitely what connects happy feet Two with with beyond thunderdome is that this guy really is a captain walker type character Mm. in that he is the false religious but he is like the false messiah everybody thinks he is a penguin because he but he's a penguin who can fly and he's not telling them that he's not really a penguin he's a puffin but he's going to go along with it anyway um and uh you know, so he, he and so he's he's kind of that kind of re, Miller's kind of revisiting that whole thing about false prophets and false uh, religious uh, icons. Um, there, you know, the bad again. The bad guys aren't all bad. The elephant seal called the Beach Master is a character who starts out as a bad character. Is there another environmental message of sorts? Um, no. Nah, I mean, I'm trying to remember. I don't think so. Or I, if I do, I, I'm trying to remember now. Um, Is there humans? There are humans, um, the, uh, but in, they're not. I guess their treatment of um, of the air animals uh, of the of the of the penguins. There's a backstory. There's like a flashback uh, involving humans, and it's really it's a beautifully visually beautiful flashback because it's a lot of it's in black and white with the characters are in color and it's a really uh, a, a really a wonderful visual uh thing to see um so right there miller is playing with mixing black and white and color which he would do later on uh, with his next film um 
But uh, a lot of what makes the movie work uh, are these sequences and with the krill in which they're one of the characters is sort of getting attached to all these objects and all these you know people to uh, to get to eventually reach a destination that's gonna matter. Um, it's a very innovative sequence um, as you're sorry my cat is being annoying um, this, that makes for bad co- podcasting and I apologize that's okay all right um, it's better than chewing food into a microphone trust me oh anybody who does that should not should be just kicked off the internet for at least a month <laughs> like the whole internet not just podcasting I've but the whole that. internet I've heard that before so yeah okay but... anyway if you're chewing during a podcast you suck Um Anyway, so like there's a lot of imaginative stuff in here, but I don't think Miller's heart is in it as much as it was the first time. Um, And you can kind of tell like he's kind of just giving this one to the studio so that they'll let him do the next Mad Max film the way he wants to do it. You know, the first Happy Feet film was very successful. I mean, it won him an Oscar uh for you know best animated film that year so when you know if miller loses uh the oscar this year don't cry too hard he's got one and you know he's probably not i'm guessing he's not going to win this year for fury road because i guess he's not campaigning that much and he doesn't need to he's 70 years old he's got he's made he's he's accomplished so much and he does he never really did play the hollywood game that much anyway he's always been kind of an outsider he's very unassuming and sweet exactly i've seen from interviews exactly he's not going to be greedy and and be like (laughs) oh i want that award now after all i've done i deserve it no he's just like hey i'm happy that people like the movie i'm happy that i'm still making movies right and and so are we and wow i mean the culmination of george miller's career everything he might have been building towards is here probably it's an almost perfect film that's kinetic visceral intense astonishing I don't know if any. I don't know if anybody's heard of this thing yet. Though it's, Mad Max Fury Road. Yeah, I don't it's, know. it's kind of underground. Not a lot of people have been talking about it. I don't know many people who've seen it. The internet certainly hasn't written about it in any capacity. Um, but it's pretty. There's really not much we can say about it that, that hasn't been said already. That's true. That's very true. <laughs> um, Which is why I was like, should I bring an article about how there uh, there is a detract? I can't believe I found a detractor. This I, I, intensely uh, anti Mad Max Fury Road to where it's like actually saying to um, embrace the so called feminism is pathetic and unforgivable. Uh, okay. the, you, you know, and it, like obviously any film, you can sort of parse it and find an agenda to <laughs> you well know, i mean it, we live in a time where nothing is allowed to become a classic anymore there always yeah. has to be a backlash now there always has to be uh and, and i'm okay with this course i'm okay with you know not everybody loves mad max Fury road that's fine they oh, don't yeah. not everybody has to i'm i'm okay with that um what I, but what i don't like is like backlash for the sake of it I don't like that's what I I don't like people who write to just be a killjoy on something like here's why you should hate Mad Max here's why it's not good and here's why you're all wrong reads to I, me uh, like uh, it's like you know I mean I can get behind uh, the piece that sort of says 
you know, something similar to what I said earlier about like the purity of Road Warrior somehow makes it a better film in their eyes from right. their their own opinion. You know, and that's fine. But to so outright dismiss this movie as being unforgivable. Yeah, come uh, on. You know, and kind of like you know, and I, you know, and, and I know a couple of people who you know, will will sort of harp on the fact that like, okay, you know, you want to take the feminist angle and sort of, you know, uh, look at this look at the strengths of this film. But also, you can't overlook the fact that, um, you know, at the very beginning of the movie, there's, you know, overweight women who are, you know, they're chosen to look very ugly as they're milking. Mm. Um, and the fact that, the, 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 you know, the, the women that are rescued are these supermodel types. And, you know, people will, you know, focus on those specific details. And I can understand that. But in I can't. And I can't because it's part of it's it makes sense in the confines of the story that he would want that Morton Joe would have these supermodels as his, you know, uh, as his slaves. He wants to create the perfect race. He's yeah. not going to get that from, you know, just any other woman. He's after something that is, uh, you know, that that's why, you know, he gives them names like Splendid and, mm-hmm. and things like that. He um, would be that type to look for the supermodel right because he's want to mate with them yeah because he's he's a he's a megalomaniacal figure and yeah you know yeah, he's, yeah. and that's that's what he wants that's what he wants for his race and his people and to carry on you know his his you know his species his name because he is such a repugnant son of a bitch and these are things that don't occur to me upon a couple of viewings, like the first time I'm watching, I'm not thinking in those terms. Right. Um, That's the, and neither of the people who are like deriding the film for like, Oh, are they, are they supermodels? I, I talked to somebody, uh, last week as I mentioned, uh, you know, the film group I was in, the uh, um, same, you know, women I was with was, and I said, I was like, yeah, it's a, it is a feminist parable and it's very empowering towards women. And one of them said, well, aren't they slaves? I said, yeah. Well, that doesn't sound empowering to me. Okay, but they're escaping. <laughs> they're getting out of. They're escaping and a woman slavery, is helping at, them to escape at great personal risk. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, they're taking off their chastity belts and stomping on them and spitting on them and risking their lives to not be with this guy anymore. And yeah. and you know, who do they have helping them? Well, Max. Yeah, but. Also Furiosa, and also a whole army of old ladies that come in later. I mean, what? I How? I mean, why do we have to defend this? You know, it's <laughs> like this seems ridiculous to me. But uh, yeah, no, you're always gonna, you, you know, detractors I, are gonna exist for anything, for anything. And uh, and I'm you sure know, people hate, I'm sure there are people who hate Citizen Kane and have written think pieces and been like, this is well, why Citizen Kane is not the greatest. Movie. Right, right, right. But I mean, it's to Miller's credit, and really. Uh, to that a movie an, an act a visceral action packed extravaganza like this can uh, open up a kind of discussion over what feminism is and what it means and I think that's worth something and so like I said I'm all I'm I'm okay with discourse and disagreements um, yeah. but but think of the whole story not just the image of the of the slaves as supermodels which they look like at the very beginning when we first see them all you know hosing themselves off and everything sure, and i can sure. see that image being a little bit off-putting to some people 
um, and thinking, oh, this is clearly, you know, th- that's a the male thing. fantasy, the male gaze, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. at work there. Um, but you know, wait till the movie is over and see what the, that 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 visual means in the great in the grand context of things. I've seen it three times now, and I'm surprised I haven't seen it more by the sounds of how everybody, how many times other people <laughs> have seen it. Um, but all three times I've seen it, I am incredibly moved by the final moment i'm seeing her uplifted there and him walking away Mm. i mean i remember the first time i saw i was like i can't believe how emotionally um moved i am how how invested i am into their into their plight and then their their rescue and all the all the things they have to go through and yet you know that not a lot of dialogue is spoken, no. especially by Max. And I think a lot of people, I think even Tarantino's, like he, of course, he has to speak his piece. He did say it was the best film of the year, but at the same time, he's like, it, this movie would have been even better with Mel Gibson in that role. I, I would have loved to have seen it. Mm. And you know, it, Max is a secondary character here. Yeah. And I think people were taken aback by that, as I wa- as was I, just because I'm thinking of it in terms of the Road Warrior and how much of a you know significant impact he has in that world. Whereas here, it is mostly the Furiosa show in terms of her having the most agency and kind of taking things into her own hands, literally with the gun, yeah, um, and you know placing on top of his shoulder, and her actually getting the 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 sort of sniper shot um, perfected, whereas he couldn't. Right, which is another sort of uh, empowering feminist kind of moment yeah. within the film. Yeah, um, I I just think the only da- the only downside for me is still uh, something that I I you know I'm, I'm sure most people would disagree with um, is that the climax is just a slight bummer for me because I want the villains to have a, an even bigger comeuppance. Mm. I want to see. I don't necessarily want to. S- see like you know his head exploding or something right really over the top ridiculous super hard r-rated but it does feel like an afterthought of like furiosa just grabbing him and like you know his head just getting decapitated by a wheel or something yeah it just seems so quick it is it instant is, it is quick but i i really love that the moment it happens, the last thing she says to him is remember, remember me. me. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. she knows that he thinks he's going to Valhalla and he, he will live again. He knows that he will, he thinks he will okay. live again. And she's saying, she gets the final word. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Remember this pal. And remember if you do what live again, this is, this will, this could happen to you again. Don't let it happen again. <laughs> um, no, that's a good point. But, but, so I, I I I like that moment, and again, it's not about Miller. You know, Miller knows that this this is is smart enough to know that these kinds of things shouldn't be about the audience's bloodlust. It should be about what's best for the story and the characters, and that's what he you know puts first, and you know that's what yeah. he puts first above everything. Every else. now and then, I got I don't know why because I'm not usually <laughs> that type of person. Yeah, I think it's just in the, in the context of the movie and knowing what kind of a person he is and what he's done to these women. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. probably more bloodlust in that regard, probably, and that's 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 I can understand that. And you know, it's um, it's not to take away from how incredible the entire action sequence is. Yeah, and pretty I mean, much the whole movie is. Oh, I think this pretty is pretty incredible. I mean, I. I think to me there are there are certain like benchmarks or certain points in you know the action adventure fantasy 
genre um you know throughout the history of cinema that are just that are like moments where you're like okay this is going to be the next thing that will be almost impossible to top raiders of the lost ark i think is one of those films the first die hard is one of those films and i think mad max fury road is is one of those films i would um, i would also say i mean i don't know how you know framing it now especially with the effects but terminator 2 at the time when yeah. that came out um I'd never seen effects like that and just utilized that. I mean, it's a little long and it's got James Cameron sort of preachiness to it in parts, but, um, you know, that, that, that whole, the truck chase, there are yeah, things yeah, in yeah. that that still to this day, I think are, are strong. Yeah. No, I, no, I, I, I like Terminator two a lot. Yeah. Um, but I mean, this movie is just relentless. I mean, it from is, beginning to it's end, it's basically, it's a, it's a two hour chase. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think it's extraordinary to me that, that a guy can go from something like Happy Feet to to something like this at what seventy two? Yeah, he's, he's like seventy or seventy one right now. Um, at such a at such a you know at an age when most filmmakers are retiring, he comes out with this, um, showing the young action filmmakers how it's done, and really sort of revitalizing the whole Mad Max franchise, re- uh, revitalizing his career and you know sort of everybody's sort of taking an interest in him again as you know a real important filmmaker um you know you said you know, and and still just not taking anything for granted in this film no um every line of dialogue matters and you know no, there's not a lot of dialogue in this film but every line that is there matters even even a little moment where uh, you know when Max does see the 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 slaves for the first time, and he orders the blonde pregnant one to come over and 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 uh, break loose his chain, and she looks over his shoulder and she sees you know the whole war party coming towards them in the in the distance, and you know there's like a thick cloud of dust around them, but you can she can see and hear them, and instead of saying, "Oh my God, they're gaining on us" or something like that, she says, "Is that the wind or just a furious fixation?" <laughs> it's such a like I, I i'm saying it in a really bad way but the way she says it is yeah. amazing and but it's such a like where did that line come from like how do you how do you sit at the typewriter and come up with that and say like she should say something here uh about you know right people coming and he comes up with that you know he he does i mean he writes very poetic dialogue uh you know in in these kinds of films and in and in, in in the babe films um and I think, you know, I, I'm really, when it comes to the success of, of Mad Max Fury Road, I wish it had done better at the box office. It did okay, but it, it, I, I think it should have done better. Um, but the It certainly critical, should have been bigger than Jurassic World. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, in terms of the reception that it received, um, you know, if it, if it doesn't win any Oscar for Best Picture, I'm not going to be disappointed. But because it's already won more awards than any other film this year, which just which just is amazing to me. Yeah, and not it's something incredibly subversive and um, and it's a blockbuster. It's a summer yeah. action blockbuster, and proves that a summer action blockbuster can be poetic and artistic, and can be taken just as seriously as anything playing at the art houses. And um, this was the year of genuine surprises with reboots and sequels for me with this Creed and Star Wars. I was all like, holy crap, I'm in. I'm in for sequels again. I I mean, when they're done right, when they're done with confidence, with assured visionary filmmakers who 
pretty much know what they're doing and can offer some innovation, like the first fight sequence in Creed. I was not yeah. expecting that yeah. in a Rocky movie. Yeah. And there's certain moments throughout Fury Road where I was not expecting that. Yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's I mean, you know, uh, it's, I mean, the movie isn't above criticism, but it, it's, it's certain, but it's certainly like to go off on it as like, oh, it's a terrible film. And, and to try and back that up, it's like, I, I just can't understand, like, can't we, I mean, it, I mean, aren't its accomplishments or what, or at least its ambitions noble enough to, mm-hmm. you know, say, okay, well, it didn't work for me, but uh, I can see that they're trying. And I think that's laud, you know, that's, that's worth noting. Um, yeah. I respond to audacity in filmmakers. And yeah. George Miller has that in droves yeah. and constantly throughout his career. And here it was just like, like just jaw on the floor. Yeah, throughout and, the entire running time of this movie, despite realizing though that I mean, I guess aesthetically, visually, um, you know, I just have a preference for the Road Warrior look. Yeah, it's a little more raw. It's a yeah. little more yeah, it's a yeah. little more organic. It, um, organic, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah no, he, no, Miller's playing with visual tricks here, and um, and it and it works. There, I, I was, I mean, I was sort of when I, when I first saw it. I'm really one of the things that I find annoying and it's not it's nobody's fault it's just annoying um and you know what i mean when i say nobody's fault in a second but like i hate when i watch an old film and i see day for night cinematography it drives me nuts and i know that's like that's what they had at the time that's what they had to do at the time (laughs) yeah and it's just the technology of the time and i can totally look past and i can get past it but like visually it drives me nuts like it takes me out it takes me out of the film and Fury Road has that kind of day for night quality in the middle section. The blue. The blue, yeah. yeah, yeah. And at first, uh, it, was, it was kind of like, at first when I saw it, I was like, I got to get past, I got to work to get past this. I got to I gotta try and, 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 and accept this because I get what he's doing, but it's... How do you okay. feel about like what Soderbergh does in traffic with the different color schemes represented? Oh, I don't mind that. Oh, okay. I, yeah. No. I don't. I, no. That's fine. Sort it's of just color lens changes. It's not the color lens change that bothers me. It's like it's a technique that takes me out of the out of a film. Mm-hmm. Uh, Day for Night is just one of those things. Mostly in old films. Um, I mean, I, I definitely got past it with Fury Road, but it took it took me a little while to adjust to that aesthetic that he chose for that sequence. Um, but yeah. now, now I watch it. I don't think anything and, and of it. Road warrior to me, like I mentioned earlier is like, you know, kind of like a punk rock song. This is like a heavy metal song. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Literally with the guitar. It's, it's interesting. Like when I, I was, I went back last night and I read an interview with Miller about that took place in 1985. Cause I wanted to read, I wanted to read what he had to say about Thunderdome. And um, he he said at the time he's like yeah uh, the the interviewer asked him like would you consider having like a, a rock song or a rock star or something like Tina Turner in a movie again or having a rock score in a Mad Max film and he's like I don't know I've I've yet to figure out how to use rock music in movies I really don't know how to do it very well. Oh. Then it's like, then he makes Happy Feet one and two, and then the Doof Warrior and Fury Road, and I think he's got it now. Um, Uh, I think he's figured it out in a way that no, not many people would think of. Um, So yeah, I don't know how to wrap this up. Um, I don't know how to usually wrap this up. Other than um, 
saying I can't wait to see what he does next. Yeah. Even if it... I think it would be, again, probably should just take a drink every time I use the word audacious, but I think it would be incredibly audacious of George Miller to pull a 180. Yeah, I mean, at this to point... To not do a Fury Road Part 2, and I don't think, based on the, tra- the trajectory of his career, that he would do a Fury Road Part 2. Um, well, I mean, it's the, a script is written. Well, um, yeah, I mean, I guess, like... At, at most, I mean, at, le- at the very least... And, you at know, the very least, he'll produce one. He might not... I think he's, he's being coy yeah. about whether or not he'll direct one. But like we said earlier, another Lorenzo's oil sort of intimate character drama. Yeah. You know, but he'll make it his own and he'll make it energetic and interesting. Um, I think that would be just as exciting. Yeah. As another action movie from him. Yeah, definitely. So, Um, I mean, there's so much to look forward to, hopefully. I hope he continues. I know he's up there in terms of age, but um, he's he's probably in my top 15, top 20 directors of all time, especially after revisiting his... His uh, films, I mean, it's it's almost like uh, him and Peter Weir, I sort of, they kind of bump heads, like, in a way, because, like, I think of, they're not, they don't necessarily make the same kind of films, but I sort of, um, I have interesting responses to each of their films, and they're all very distinctive, and their earlier career is, you know, very different from the kind of work that they would later go on to do. Um, but obviously, what with what George Miller has accomplished here with Fury Road, uh, especially now that you know he's, he's been nominated for all these awards, he's won all these awards, and this is going to be essentially known as like the Sistine Chapel of action movies, <laughs> and which is fine by me. Um, I think I probably have maybe a couple others that I love more on a personal level, but there's no denying. Uh, the impact this movie had this year. And it made me excited for action blockbusters again, whereas most years I dread summer. Yeah. And now I I definitely dread this coming summer. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I'm seeing the more trailers I see, the less excited I am for this coming summer. I'm done with Avengers, (laughs) superheroes and all that kind of crap. I am looking transformers. I am looking forward to the next, um, uh, like a film, which is the, uh, uh, Sambo, what is his name? Uh, Cabo and the Two Strings. Oh, yeah. Uh, that looks phenomenal. Um, yeah, 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 for sure. But, uh, but yeah, everything else, I mean, I mean, there really hasn't been that much to, um, to get me excited. I think, unless, unless Finding Dory is, is I don't know if that's supposed to come out this mm. summer or, or, in, 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 isn't, well, I mean, except with t- the Toy Story sequels are good. Yeah, but I mean, um, yeah. but I'm, but Andrew Stanton is directing this one, oh, so if he okay. directs it, then I'm so in. I don't even. Yeah, care. yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, but we won't have a new George Miller movie this year, but we'll we'll look forward right. to whatever he does next. And um, I'm so glad that we got to talk about him, and I got to revisit uh, a lot of his work again because it just makes me excited for movies. He, he yep. really does. And uh, again, in terms of editing, I, uh, I I if I was teaching an editing class, I would show. A, a lot of his stuff. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely, definitely. So, uh, what would be so your top three? Yeah, what would be your top three? Because it's 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 so tough for me right now. Because um, having rewatched them all recently, I love so many. <laughs> my top three, I got them here on Letterbox D. Um, Mad Max Fury Road number one, uh, Road Warrior number two, Babe Pig in the City number three. I'm going to go with Lorenzo's Oil number three. 
number two, man, number two and number one are very interchangeable. I love them both equally, but number two, Babe Pig in the City, and number one, The Road Warrior. Yeah. And I, uh, Fury Road would be number four. Yeah. <laughs> it's again, it's like the the personal connection to Lorenzo's oil sort of transcends yeah. Yeah, a little yeah. bit more for me. And uh, yeah, so wow, Colin, that was great. Okay. Thank you so much for being on the show. I had My a pleasure. Blast this is a lot of fun. You, and uh, um, maybe in the future we could do Jeff Nichols together. That might be interesting. Since we did David Gordon, <laughs> Gordon Green, maybe we should just do Jeff Nichols. Okay. Point. That might be fun. Might be fun. Yeah. All right. Or you can think of somebody else. <laughs> well, I think I've done. I don't. I can't. I'm trying to think of other. You've done already done Terry Gilliam, right? Yeah. Yeah. You've done. But that pe- was so early on that I'd be willing to. D- no, 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 don't, no, don't no, do no, that. No, don't no, do no, that. No, 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 no. We do. We do sequel episodes now. Oh, uh, really? And they're really good. Okay. They're really good. What about uh, you've done Peter Weir already? Yeah. Okay. But so. again, I wouldn't mind doing him again. Uh, but mm, you shouldn't. Do it's that. not a bad thing to go back. Uh, and plus, having a completely different guest. Yeah. You know, a whole but, other different conversation. Yeah, but yeah. Um, no, don't, don't, don't. <laughs> you know, with Terry Gilliam, we did not cover Zero Theorem or Tideland or um, some so, of the, so, I mean, okay, so. I never saw Zero Theorem. You liked it, right? It's good, yeah. Okay, you should see it. Okay, okay. Um, so you no longer do the format where you just pick two films and concentrate on no. them now. Okay, that's good. I'd rather just make it a whole two and a half hour, let's go through as much as we can. Yeah. Okay, and even skip Because we used to do what we watched, if you remember. When right, We talked right. about, oh, I saw this this past week. But yeah. I was like, let's just make it all about the director. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so, that's yeah. cool. So maybe it does make sense to go back Where and can these people read your work? Well, um, rogerieber.com. Um, I write a f- column every uh, month about short films. I have no idea what my next column is going to be. I'm kind of nervous right now because I don't have any ideas. Um, but uh, every every the first Tuesday of the month, uh, there's a new article about a short film on rogerieber.com. I'm on Nick DeGilio's show every, where well, I will be back in March uh, doing Nick DeGilio's show um, every week uh, on Sunday night, Monday morning, um, with along with Eric Childress. Um, what else? Letterboxd, Letter- Colin Suter. Colin Suter, C-O-L-L-I-N, uh, last name Suter, S-O-U-T-E-R. I'm on Letterboxd, and I got all kinds of lists and things on that and reviews. I'm doing one Woody Allen movie a week for a year uh, this year. Um, so That might be fun. Like I said at the end of the year, even as a bonus episode, we talk about that, because that might be yeah. interesting. Um, sorry, i got to get my cat's attention. She's somewhere where she should not be. Um, so, yeah. Uh, Letterboxd. Um, I think that's it. That I occasionally write... I've, I haven't written something for eFilm Critic in a long time, so I, I feel like I shouldn't mention that anymore, but Anyway, <laughs> I, I think that they should probably at some point update their site. Good God, they need to do that. <laughs> I mean, it is it is embarrassing. Like I can't. I that's why I don't want to write for them anymore because their site is embarrassing. Uh, it is like circa two thousand one still. It's like a <laughs> GeoCities site uh, uh-huh. that just has no place on the internet anymore. It's a blight, but the content is pretty good but yeah there's some great writers but it's a ghost town i don't know who goes to that site besides hollywood bitch slap still exist yes oh wow they both still exist that's funny and i wish i mean i'm happy they exist in terms of Of the content but the appearance is wretched fix it 
Fix it. Fix it. Somebody fix it. The next episode here, um, another Chicago film critic, um, local alumni. Alumni. Um, I don't know where the word alumni comes from, but he's been on the show, so I guess he's a, a alumni to the show. He's a he's a veteran. Yeah, he's a veteran. He's an expert. He does it all. He talks TV. He talks movies. He's been to all the film festivals. He's um, a huge contributor to the Chicago Critics Film Festival, which Colin also helps runs the short program, the shorts programming there. Yep, which I'm excited for when that uh, um, pops up in May, May 20th through 26th at the Music Box Theater. Yeah. Of course, I'll I'll be plugging that like crazy on here, and uh, you know, get all the links to that. But next episode in two weeks, Sydney Sydney Lumet, who I imagine, um, <laughs> I keep saying this a lot lately, is going to probably have to be a sequel episode too because it's a rich filmography. Yeah, there. there's so much to cover. We're pretty much going to tackle the big ones, the classics, the ones that uh, you know he's won a lot of awards for the the most noteworthy ones. Your Dog Day Afternoon, your Network. Um, the Wiz, no, no, probably no. not. All right. uh, but I just recently watched Prince of the City for the first time, and mm. I want to talk about that. Yeah, and we're gonna t- we're gonna t- we're gonna touch upon his last film too because I think that's pretty special. Um, so Brian Tallarico, the great Brian Tallarico, who was on for he- um, the Miyazaki episode, and um, Park Chan Wook, maybe one other, but he's he's obviously a great guest in the. And a wonderful friend to the show. So we're looking forward to talking with him. Until then, please visit directorsclubpodcast.com. Send me an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. And the network is up and running. We got Jim Hankey's show, um, his fantastic music interview-based show, Vinyl Emergency, as well as Eric Childress's wonderful new movie madness which um colin just appeared on the first episode hey reviewing hail caesar so uh please check out both of those shows subscribe to them they're great they're great guests and visit nowplayingnetwork.net for updates and information there as well so thanks again colin for being on the show my pleasure all right everybody we'll talk to you in two weeks thanks again bye Straight out of context, you know what this is. You listen 24-7 whenever anybody, anytime, says something you can pull out of context and it sounds dirty. This one of Jim Laskowski. I had a good time with this. It's short. It's not too demanding. (laughs) Okay. What's great is that here's the opposite side of the spectrum, also from Jim Laskowski, courtesy of Josh. It felt so long, I could barely handle it. (laughs) <laughs> okay uh brian brings this one of eric childress he just sort of sneaks it in there mm-hmm <laughs>